Hello, Katerina. Yes, hello. Hi, can you hear me well? Yeah, I can hear you well. Perfect, I can hear you well too. And I put the link up. Uh, you can check if you can click it. And, uh, uh, where, I, I don't see the presentation. So um, above our profile pictures, there um, there's a link that you can click. Do you see? There's like a little picture with um, the label. And little picture, if, little picture of uh, of the presentation, and then there's if you click on that, it says go to link, and then uh, hold on um, one second. The, the presentation, I don't see. So first, it's I uh, saw my picture, then my name, then audio settings, notification, online friends, topics, language. Which one is the presentation thing? um do you are you on the desktop i'm on the laptop oh okay um so um i'm not sure how it is i cannot open the laptop to check how how it looks like so um do you see just your name or do you also see my picture and Victoria? i saw i saw your uh your picture my picture and then followed it by the speakers and some other people's picture here okay so do you see above our pictures uh a link that you can click oh i see, I see. there is a yes. uh, okay yeah so yeah so just um this this won't be a screen so this is not a screen share so how you're opening up the presentation no, that's how also the audience will open it up so it's really helpful to refer to which slide you're on when you switch. oh i see i see now i, I opened the, the slides already okay yeah perfect yeah so but everyone has to open the slides by themselves basically so okay um yeah just a reminder to like when you switch to the next slide to tell people you know let's but when i opened it when i open it it doesn't show single slide issue two slides on the same screen uh yeah it's kind of um yeah so um yeah the display is a little bit different than on the right it's not like a full screen um display i see i see but you have the slide numbers, so you labeled them, so you could. But how about the animation? Then I can show the animation, right? Yes, it should work. The animation on which slide number do you have? Uh, most of the slides I have like the uh, items come out uh, like uh, one by one. Oh Easy. yeah, that that maybe it doesn't work here. I don't see it working that way. Okay, okay. If that's so, uh, that's okay. I didn't know that. So you you don't have the function like uh, share a screen sort of that kind of kind of function. No, we don't have that here. Hmm. Um, but so the thing so, is that um, we don't have the screen share, but this link will. So so we are recording the session, and for people that are, you know, where it's in the middle of the night right now or so on. When they 
listen to the replay on the Clubhouse app, they can still, so the links are still active in the replay and also the links in the chat with people share links. So uh, while they are listening, they can do the same thing we will do um, to click on the presentation and then follow along while you speak. That's what I like about, um, about this type of recording. Since we have people really all over the world and there's never a time where everyone is awake or able to attend. So, um, I see. Yeah. And in, in other we don't so you said that you said that everyone else, uh, everyone online, they just basically, if I tell them which slide I'm on, they just follow along. They have to click their computer to get to that slide, right? Yeah, mm -hmm, exactly. Okay. okay, okay. All right, got that. And how, how's your, how was your week? Happy Friday. <laughs> oh yeah, happy Friday. Finally, it's Friday. I came back from Los Angeles. I was in Los Angeles for three days. I came back Wednesday afternoon. So I'm only in office yesterday and today. Oh, nice. But yeah. you, was it for work or for? Uh, well, my son is going to have his first baby. They had a baby shower. So I was, I was. Oh, there. exciting. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Is it the first one? Yeah, the you first, said the first. Yeah, that's the first of uh, a, my son is the older, uh, the oldest uh, child of the family, and uh, obviously this is his first. It's a uh, first uh, baby, so my first grandbaby. That's wonderful. That must be so exciting for you. Yeah, it is exciting. So that's why we went to Los Angeles for the baby shower. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's a good week. So, so how, how, how long do you still have to wait? Oh, <laughs> uh, it's not too much longer. Today is, uh, 19th already and their due date, uh, expected, expected date is, uh, September 16th. So less than four weeks. Oh, wow. That's really close. That's nice. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. it's a nice, uh, it's a nice time to have a birthday, no? Don't yeah, you think yeah. it's a nice time of the year to have your birthday? Right, right. September, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's uh, three generations who are in September. Myself is in September. Uh, my son was September in September, and now the grandbaby will, will also be in September. Oh, wow. That's amazing. That's uh, <laughs> <laughs> That will be a, a huge uh, birthday celebration month. That's and right, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of in the middle of the year. I like that. Right. So each generation is earlier. I was, uh, you know, I according to the calendar year, I was born in uh, 25th of September. And my son was born on 23rd. And uh, the grandbaby will be sometime in September, definitely will be before my son's birthday. So each generation is a few days earlier. That's so interesting. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> that's very curious. Um, that's well. Um, I hope everything goes well for the mom, and uh, yeah. yeah, I wish you all the best and all the luck for your grandchild. It's yeah, uh, very exciting. Yeah. 
uh, thank you for reminding me this because I didn't somehow I didn't have it on my calendar. <laughs> so luckily, I, I'm glad today, you still uh, came so. and made the presentation. That's amazing in such a short time. <laughs> thank well, you I had it. I had it before, and I just needed to modify uh, the slides, add a a few, uh, add more, take out more uh, that kind of adjustment. Hey, hey, hey. How's everybody doing? Hello, Dr. Shen. Welcome to Science Society. Welcome to Clubhouse. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thank you. This is uh, Zifeng Ren. Uh, oh, this is who? How do I say your name? Yeah, Zifeng Ren. Zifeng Ren. Okay, okay. That's right. You got Dr. Shen, Dr. Ren. So you're Dr. Ren, right? Yes. I don't think Gang Chen, Professor Gang Chen will be on today. He didn't reply to me. Gotcha. That's okay. So Dr. Ren, are you also in Houston? Yes. Whereabouts? Uh, I'm at the University of Houston. Nice, nice. I'm in Houston as well, dude. Oh, I see. So you yeah. Say, which part of Houston? Um, I'm I'm right now, right now. I'm floating around Houston, right? So I, I I took off for a while to India. I was we built this oxygen concentrator, and uh, the whole world started using it, you know, d during COVID and stuff like that. So I'm back right now. I'm in uh, staying oh, at a yeah. hotel in. At um at the Marriott over in uh, uh, Westheimer and Beltway, you know. I see, I see, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I did. Uh, I lived in uh, Galleria uh, area for one year there. Yeah, yeah. The guy, so you're like where in the guy, like uh, right there, six ten and and Westheimer. Uh, it's very close there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Are you in the Are you in the loop or outside the loop? I was uh, outside the loop, and then. Uh, just did it, rented it for one year, and I bought my house here uh, uh, in Houston, and then I moved it to Pearland. Right now, I'm living in Pearland. Oh, in Pearland. Okay, okay. Yeah, so you're down there, two eighty eight and uh, Beltway and stuff, right? Exactly. Uh, right after uh, Belt Eight, and then take off on Route uh, Five Eighteen. Uh, very close. In fact, very close to uh, two eighty eight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and for those of you that don't know, who like. Houston is massive, okay? Just so you guys know, it's like a huge, like land mass, it's massive. We got three loops around us. There's the 610 loop, and then we got this beltway loop it's further out. And then I think the, uh, was it the Number 99 six. loop? How, how long, that thing's like what, 270 miles or something crazy? <laughs> how big is that loop, you know? Uh, or what it's is huge. the, what, <laughs> it's crazy, it's crazy, I right? I mean, Belt A to you, if you, Drive around the loop. Uh, you need like uh, two hours, definitely. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. At least two. And hours. then, but for uh, the third loop, number six, uh, you probably need like three to four hours drive around. Oh, I think you need more than that. Oh, 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 that's right. Six. You got highway six, and then you got ninety nine. <laughs> we got four oh. loops around us, dude. You know. Right. Right. Uh, you know, we got 1960. It turns into six. It's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Doctor Doctor Ren, um, uh, here on Clubhouse, right? Like, so think of it as you're kind of uh, presenting more likely to like your peers, right? And what I mean by that, like, especially in the science side here, you got a bunch of other PhDs and doctors and entrepreneurs and like you know techie people that are interested in science and like to collaborate and and whatnot. So it's um, you know, consider it like it's a fun group, like a fun gathering. It's a little different, you know, where, um, you know, like the hope. Imagine you're presenting, 
right? Like in your living room. That's the best way. Like you got some friends over at your place and you're just hanging out and everybody's hanging out maybe <laughs> around the, the, the fire chat, you know, like a fire chat kind of thing. And, you know, you got the little, the, the clubhouse and, you know, like you got your neighborhood in Pearland, you got the little clubhouse, we're all hanging out, you know, and you're presenting some stuff to like your friends and things, right? And you got some, you got some food over there because everybody's like sitting down, eating something, probably laying down, right? <laughs> at their home, right? So it's like a very comfy kind of, uh, environment so i just kind of want to give you that that it's, it's different it's different than typical presentation so um and if you want you know very, like a, very different in fact uh, yes since pandemic started i have been presenting online to different on different platforms uh one time uh i was you know before pandemic i go around uh, the world to present uh most of the time if you get uh, audience like uh if you get like 200 people, you say, wow, so many people today. But uh, that's nearly, not nearly uh, as many as online. Uh, in middle of 2020, uh, I gave a talk at that time. Uh, we had uh, 135,000 people online uh, for that talk. <laughs> but the thing is, even though you have so many audience, but you don't have the passion. You, you are talking to a computer, talking to a screen, which is totally different from you talk to real people. So we prefer to talk to real people. Oh, wow. Yes, for sure. So, so we, you know, we welcome you and we're, you know, honored to have you do the presentation today. What would be super cool, and I think you'd get, have fun doing it too if you want, like maybe after your presentation, you know, all of us, like a bunch of us are going to jump back into like a little pillow tribe room and we just like collaborate and we would love to maybe move, basically expand upon what the future could look like. You know, like you'll have a lot of brains in there. It'll be, it'll be, it'll, it'll be a lot of fun if you have time, right? So whatever time you got, you know, we just kind of uh, look forward to hearing you present, but also adding value by hopefully giving you some ideas and different things that you go back uh, home with too. So let's... With that said, I think we should uh, go ahead and get started. So the floor sure. is, uh, I'll, yeah, I'll pass it to Katerina first. Go ahead, Katerina. <laughs> yeah, so welcome to Science Society, um, uh, Dr. Ren. Uh, it's such an honor having you here. And um, yeah, before we start, let me give uh, the audience a little bit of an introduction so they get to know you a little bit. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Zifeng Rang, he is an Anderson Chair Professor in the Department of Physics at Houston um, in the Science Center uh, for Superconductivity. And um, he uh, did his Bachelor in Material Science and Engineering Department of Mechanical Engineering at the Sichuan Institute of Technology in Chengdu, China and his Master's in Science and Engineering Department of Mechanical Engineering in Huatsong University of Science and Technology in Wuhan, China. And then he did his PhD in Condensed Matter Physics Institute of Physics at the Chinese Academy of Sciences in Beijing, China. And um, uh, Dr. Ren, his research um, is focused on um, high performance thermoelectric materials and um, finding catalysts for water splitting um, and a nanosheet for enhanced oil recovery 
uh, thermal management um, uh, to find efficient cooling materials and thermal storage, superconductivity, solar energy conversion, and flexible transparent electrodes. And um, yeah, so it's all really, those are all really interesting fields of research. And um, before we start, I would like to ask you like a couple of questions. And when did you kind of uh, decide or had an interest in going into science and, and doing this like life, having this life in science? Was it something you always wanted to do? Maybe a teacher or a book you read or something that excited you to go into and make your life about science? That's a, uh, that's a very interesting question. Uh, you know, when I was uh, growing up, at that time, that was uh, back in 1970s. 90, at that time, uh, in China, of course, uh, the condition was uh, very bad. Uh, I, myself, my parents, they were illiterate. Uh, they never had a, a single day in school. Uh, so all, uh, they were farmers. And the whole goal at that time is uh, just try to get to uh, college or any school, professional school or college, and then get uh, a work instead of uh, working in the cities, doesn't matter, small or big, uh, instead of working on the land as a farmer. That's the only goal at that time. But of course, after I got into the college and uh, slowly get into different kind of uh, fields, like engineering, science later on, and just follow the flow. Really, I didn't have any uh, big goal like others. Some people, when they were young, they had a dream, become a scientist, become an astronaut, become whatever, uh, those kind of uh, big uh, professions. I didn't have that kind of thing. Just follow the, the, the flow. And my philosophy, lifetime philosophy is uh, doing things uh, do the best of whatever comes to you today and uh, do the best for today and then look forward for tomorrow. Uh, and no big plans for too much down the road because that's out of reach anyway. <laughs> that's my part of my, my life. That's, I think, a really great, um, that's a great approach uh, to, to do that. Uh, to manage life, I think it's only so much we can control. So, doing our best is the thing we can. That's a that's a very interesting story. And and how did you come about this project or going also into this type of field of technology, physics, engineering? Um, yeah, H how did you then ended up uh, here discussing about this project, basically, I think? Yeah, that's also very interesting. Uh, they, uh, as I told you that uh, I, my career, I started as a uh, farmer's son and then got into college. Uh, all my degrees, as you introduced, uh, were in China. And I came to this country in 1990, uh, did my postdoctoral uh, fellow work uh, at SUNY Buffalo. Then I uh, moved to Boston College as a professor. Uh, I, at that time, I was mainly studying uh, you know, 
carbon nanotubes, superconductors, uh, the uh, carbon nanotubes, uh, which I'm not going to talk about today. Uh, but at that time, I basically opened up a new field for the for the world, uh, how to grow nine carbon nanotubes for flat panel displays, uh, which was very promising at that time. And then, of course, later on, I uh, uh, moved into thermoelectrics. And, and then after I came to uh, Houston back in January uh, 2013, and I branched uh, or broadened uh, my research to uh, much, uh, many more uh, fields, which I'm going to uh, talk about a little bit uh, uh, in my second slide uh, anyway. Uh, so, so basically, all those things I follow, sort of just like my life, uh, do everything the best for today and then look forward for tomorrow. At the same time, uh, for research field, it was the same thing. And then whatever I have, I do the best and then try to look for new opportunities. Uh, if there's anything new, uh, then I fear that I have the capability, also the facilities, and I start to uh, get into it. Uh, but the first question always I ask myself is, can I do this uh, very well, sort of very well, I'm talking about to become the best in the world. Uh, if I, my answer to myself is, oh no, that's probably, I'm not going to be the best in the world. And then I said, forget it, I'm not going to get into that. Uh, unless I, be, I can become the best in the world, I say, okay, uh, I'm going to get in. So for this specific project, uh, Born Arsenal, we're going to talk about today, is in fact uh, happened right after I moved out of Boston College. My former colleague, uh, Professor David Brudel, uh, called me uh, saying that, Zifeng, I just recently calculated a new material which could have thermal conductivity higher than diamond. I said, wow, that's great. Uh, you know, diamond is so uh, so much difficult to make it a large size, even though it does have high thermal conductivity, but really you can't make it in large size nor use it for a uh, large scale. And if you could have something else, uh, could have thermal conductivity like higher than diamond, uh, that would be very interesting. So I immediately jumped into looking into how to make it. That's how uh, ended up with the recent few years uh, kind of, the kind of research and the work on boron arsenide, which I'm going to talk about in more detail. Yeah, thank you so much for um, for sharing this background story with us. It's it's so impressive, and I'm so glad you have these capabilities and that you follow those principles. And we, you know, humanity gets to be able to use all your uh, discovery. So uh, thank you for following that path. And uh, yeah, if you, the stages are yours now for the presentation. Uh, so feel free to, um, yeah, I don't know if you prefer for questions to come along in between or if you want to have like a discussion session after. Um, that's really up to you. We'll we'll help you moderate um, and whatever you think makes more sense for you. And yeah, thank you. Okay, thank you, thank you so much, uh, Katarina. Uh, thank you all the audience uh, wherever you are. Uh, you know, this is a uh, maybe for some of you, 
uh, it's not a really convenient time, either too early or too late in the too early in the morning or too late in the evening. But anyway, thank you. So what I'm going to talk today uh, is about uh, boron arsenide single crystals. Uh, so first, uh, I would like to thank uh, uh, all the collaborators, my former postdocs like uh, Dr. Fei Tian, uh, Hao Zhan Sun, uh, who are uh, working as the professors in China universities, and also my former uh, student, uh, Guitar uh, Gimmich, uh, who is a uh, who is working in uh, uh, NAM, uh, I think it's a NAM research lab uh, in California. And also uh, my current uh, student, uh, Feng Pan. And then, of course, I would like to thank uh, Professor David Brudel at Boston College, who uh, predicted, uh, theoretically predicted uh, this material with high thermal conductivity. Uh, I would like to say a few more words on this is, uh, some of you in the audience know that uh, you know research is our theoretical part, also the experimental part. Uh, very often, uh, theories, uh, the best theories that would be, you predict something and the experimentalists try to make it, and then try to uh, make it uh, which prove the theories right or wrong. Uh, of course, uh, that doesn't happen very often. Uh, only a very, very small fraction uh, of the series that can do that, uh, predict something and then later be uh, proved by experiment. Most of the theoretical work is try to explain what experimental work is uh, and how to you know, interpret the data a lot for prediction. Uh, both are necessary, uh, what I'm trying to say is uh, for the world. And then I also would like to prefer, uh, uh, to uh, thank Professor Gang Chen at, at MIT, who has been my uh, very long time collaborator. And then turns out also we were, we came out from the same university in China uh, when I was a master's degree student at the Huazhong University of Science and Technology. And uh, luckily we have been, I have been in Boston, he has been in uh, MIT for many years. So we have collaborated for a very long time. And we published uh, uh, probably now close to 200 papers together. And then another collaborator I would like to appreciate is the Professor Shi uh, Li at uh, UT Austin, uh, who has been studying boron arsenide with us. And then uh, for the audience, uh, if you can go to uh, slide two, second slides. And uh, what I would like to use this opportunity to tell you a little bit on my current research areas. Uh, Katarina has eluded a little bit. Uh, so here I'm telling you that uh, I, uh, my research work uh, covers like high performance thermal electrical materials. Many, uh, we are looking at the figure of merit how efficient these thermal electrical materials can be for power generation and also for cooling applications. In fact, a lot of you are using probably thermal electrical devices, but you don't know they are thermal electrics. Uh, for those of you, if you have a high-end car, uh, a back seat, if your car seat, you turn on your engine very quickly, your seat is very cool, that that cooling is by thermal electrics, not by your uh, uh, compressor, uh, your air conditioning system in the car. Uh, it's a different system. And also, you some of you have wine coolers. 
you put a wine on the uh, in the cooler, which is thermoelectrics. And also a lot of hotels nowadays, the refrigerators were uh, thermoelectrics, which does not make any noise. Oh, by the way, Katerina, uh, if the audience uh, uh, wants to raise questions anytime, please interrupt me. Uh, then I have time. a question I would love to interrupt with. Thermoelectrics, sure. I can reverse thermoelectrics by excess heat pools and capacities and generate electricity too, right, with this? Yes. So if I had, a say, a data center full of excess heat, yeah. what, I exactly. guess, carry on with what might be the possibilities with your research due to so, having a, a pool of available heat. Exactly. So thermoelectric materials, uh, there are two, well, in fact, three functions. One function is you use uh, electrical power to cool uh, one side, and then the other side will become hot. It's sort of a, a heat engine. And then say, for example, in the summertime, if you put your thermoelectrical cooler on the window, you take out the heat from your room and dump it outside. And then in the winter, you can reverse it. You can take the heat from outside and dump it into your room and then as a heating. So that's two functions already. At the same time, in your data center, if you have a lot of computers consuming a lot of power, you generate temperature there, and then you can use your thermoelectrical um, uh, device and convert that heat into electric, electrical power. So thermoelectric is very versatile. And not only they are versatile uh, with multifunctions, but also they don't have moving uh, parts. Uh, they do not make any noise. Uh, and also their lifetime is very long. Uh, you easily, you can use it for uh, 50, 60, or over 100 years for the same device. 50, 60? Because the current, I thought, read up on those thermoelectric cells were only 20 years. Well, I'll uh, give you an example. Uh, in 1950s, 1960s, NASA uh, launched a very deep space uh, flying objects uh, because they are so deep they are out of the reach of the solar uh, sun, uh, the light from the sun. And uh, they could not have any uh, energy except they carried uh, radioisotope materials on the flying object. Then they use thermoelectrics, convert those heat into uh, electrical power to supply power to those uh, uh, deep space missions. And those objects, they were launched in 1950s, 60s. They are still working perfectly fine. Uh, now it's already over 60 years. And the next phase, uh, U.S., as you know this, uh, U.S. is going back to the moon. And the power in those uh, flying objects to moon, they are going to use the uh, also thermoelectrics. Does that answer your question? It, it does. Are there any particular heat gradients that you require to be best optimized say like what's the temperature differential that would be great for that so for that uh is uh, uh you know you obviously uh, we have different kind of temperature gradient for some like your data center you are looking temperature gradient probably somewhere 50 degrees degrees uh because your temperature will not be too too much higher but, However, but if it's best to use thermal pumps to aggregate it, it could be worth doing that for efficiencies on the conversion. Of course, if you can increase the hot side temperature 
and your efficiency will be higher. But of course, uh, in water, when you pump the heat to raise the temperature, you consume energy. So at the end, you may not benefit uh, benefit at all uh, from the uh, energy recovery point of view. And of course, for other heat source, uh, you could have like say hot side, a couple hundred degrees C or a thousand degrees C. Depends on whatever the your heat source temperature it is. And then we, as a researcher, we have studied the different kind of thermoelectric materials, which are suitable for different temperatures. Overall, the general rule is the higher the uh, the heat source temperature, and uh, you are going to have the higher uh, efficiency and more energy recovery. So that's the general rule. Uh, so we, we do have different materials, different devices suitable for different temperatures. Okay. Hey, I have a question about the, the prediction um, of the um, con heat conductivity of uh, boron arsenide. Right. So um, first of all, what what kind of methodology was used in the, the, this prediction? That um, was the so first, first principles uh, calculation. Okay, uh, DFT. Uh, well, DFT, DFT, or different kind of ways they they use methods. The DFT, uh, I think they also use other methods. Yeah. Okay. Um. So, um, maybe a bit, um, bit of a technical question, but um, so the. With all these first principles calculations, one of the big drawbacks is um, actually getting results at finite temperature. Um, and I think there is this um, Seebeck coefficient, which which um, characterizes um, how efficient a thermoelectric is. So I was wondering, I mean, from DFT, what you really get is the um, the ground state density of uh, of uh, a material electron density. Um, so going from that, how would you calculate um, the Seebeck coefficient or its thermal conductivity. Right. Uh, for the Seebeck, well, first of all, for the thermal conductivity calculation, uh, when the materials are uh, complicated, uh, they, which requires a lot of calculating power. Uh, so thermal conductivity is very complicated uh, physical parameter. Uh, it is affected by a lot of uh, things, you know, mainly is phonons and then also charge carriers. Uh, the phonons, you have optical phonons, you have acoustic phonons, and then different branches, and then you have phonon uh, scattering, you know, three phonons, four phonons, all sorts of those things, uh, which I'm going to uh, talk about a little bit later. Uh, for the Seebeck coefficient calculation, obviously, you need the band structure. Uh, you need also to know the carrier concentration. Uh, you also need to know mobility, all sorts of those things. And uh, again, it's pretty complicated. Uh, but nowadays, there are uh, so many people have developed uh, very uh, good uh, calculating methods. Uh, they can pretty accurately predict uh, the Seebeck coefficient, thermal conductivity, uh, all sorts of physical properties. Uh, so. Does that answer your question? Um, yeah, uh, thank you. Okay, so then let me continue uh, uh, if uh, no more other questions. So my second uh, project uh, I'm doing here is materials. Basically, 
uh, finding or invent new materials with ultra-high thermal conductivities and also ultra-high carrier mobilities. Uh, in this particular case, we are studying boron arsenide, single crystals, which is in fact the bulk of the, today's talk. I'm going to go into more detail uh, on how to make them, how to characterize them. And then the third part, uh, third project that my group is doing is uh, we try to find materials for uh, oil recovery. Uh, I know uh, nowadays we are, as a society, uh, we are very much look forward to have clean energy sources instead of oil, uh, gas, or coal. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, let's face the, the, the reality. Uh, the clean energy will not be able to support the society now. Uh, probably uh, will not be able to even in 10 years' time. Uh, I know uh, eventually we are going to move into clean energy, but before, uh, you, I normally call it the clean energy is our promised land, but before we reach our promised land, we still need that bridge. Uh, so oil, gas, coal, all sorts of those kind of fossil fuels still will be very important, bring us to the promising land of the uh, clean energy. Uh, but how to get oil out of the ground, uh, economically, environmentally friendly, also to have, uh, you know, uh, environmental benefit. We, I invited, uh, invented a, a nano, sodium nanofluid, and uh, which will react with water when injected into the oil wells. Uh, it will react with water, generate hydrogen gas, generate sodium hydroxide, also generate a lot of heat. All those are very beneficial for oil recovery. Uh, we are uh, commercializing that technology uh, very actively. The fourth uh, uh, field uh, my group has been doing is the efficient catalyst, really try to uh, splitting water uh, into hydrogen as an energy source. Uh, and also, of course, in some situations like the hospital, oxygen is also very useful. Uh, the, the, the reason we do that is we figure out in the future, uh, the best way to store energy would be, I think, batteries and also hydrogen. Uh, but how to produce hydrogen is very important. Uh, currently, the industry has been using fossil fuels to either do gasification of coal or use the uh, natural gas uh, methane uh, reforms called gas re uh, reform. Uh, but all those kind of processes, they use a lot of energy uh, at its beginning and also at its end, they produce a lot of uh, environmentally uh, in, uh, unfriendly gas like carbon dioxide. That's not good. But however, water splitting, you generate hydrogen and oxygen. Uh, there's no uh, negative sense coming out, byproducts. Uh, and also that uh, you can use, basically what I'm trying to think is use a wind power, solar power, and also very uh, importantly is a uh, grid power when uh, demand is not there at the off-peak time. When you have a lot of electric power, you don't know what to do with it. And then uh, we can use the water splitting electrolysis to generate hydrogen. Uh, that's why I work on that. And then the uh, fifth uh, research uh, territory I picked up, that was in 
right after the pandemic. And uh, we, we know at that time, uh, the COVID, uh, you know, COVID-2 virus is transmitted <clears throat> from people to people through air. So in order to uh, eliminate the transmission or slow down the transmission, uh, cleaning the air is very important. So which is why we invented a new filter uh, that can be heated up to above 100 degrees C, which can instantaneously kill the virus uh, also with very high uh, filtration efficiency. Our filter can filter any particles, uh, including any viruses, uh, bacteria, uh, all those things. Anything size-wise above 0.3 microns at the efficiency 99.97% single by a single pass. Uh, if you have, you know, uh, if the air comes from your room, again, goes back to the filter, and then by two passes, basically, uh, there's no any potential virus uh, in the room, and it's very clean. And then the final, the other uh, research topic in my group is on superconductivity. I'm right now. I did my PhD uh, study on superconductivity, and then I look after many years, I have not done research on superconductivity, but now I'm looping back uh, to superconductivity again. This time, I'm not doing any fundamental research on superconductivity, but try to utilize, use the existing superconductors for applications. And uh, I have a grand view now uh, to completely uh, change the, uh, you know, the society, how the energy is transmitted, how the trans you know, mass transport, everything. So my view is, uh, I have a vision uh, is try to modify the current highway system and uh, use all, uh, and then all the vehicles will be superconducting levitated. Uh, instead of going in the future, going uh, you know, 75 miles per hour, we're going to go uh, 400 miles per hour. And uh, you're not touching the ground because you're suspended. Uh, you can go much faster. And also you use uh, very little uh, power to go forward. And give an example, if, uh, I mean, since I'm in Houston, if I want to go to Los Angeles, uh, the total mileage is under 2,000 miles. Now you have to drive two days uh, to there if you drive. Uh, but use a new system. Uh, you can sit in your car, you don't do anything, fall into sleep. And after four hours, you know, four to uh, between four and five hours, and you're in LA. And you, uh, you drive your car right off the highway uh, and to wherever you want. Uh, and not only the personal cars, also the trucks, uh, the buses. Uh, in this way, you don't have to, uh, you know, the traditional uh, superconducting magnetic train, uh, the train has a schedule, you cannot go anytime you want. But use a new system, you can go anytime you want. Uh, in order to do that, we need a lot of superconductors uh, laying on the highway, and the superconductor will be cooled by the liquid hydrogen. So in this way, your liquid hydrogen is being stored and cooled uh, and stored and also transported. Uh, along the way from Houston to LA or to New York. Uh, you, if you need hi uh, hydrogen, you can get it out there. Uh, if you produce hydrogen, uh, you want to inject it to the system, you inject it, 
and you get you you get paid by the system. So that's uh, hydrogen storage, hydrogen transport, uh, transport, and also a lot of electrical power will be transmitted through the superconductors, and then also stored there. And it, so this way, it's a one system. You have six functions. You have electrical power transmission and storage, two functions. You have clean energy hydrogen, uh, liquid hydrogen transmitted and also stored. And also you have the people and goods are moved, mass transmit, transit moved from place to place. Does not depend on the schedule and you can go anytime you want, uh, very fast, save a lot of money. So that's the uh, research territories, uh, research fields my group has been studying. And if you have any questions now, I can answer or uh, if you don't, I can you know, go on to the uh, really talk about it uh, or RCLAB. So let me just uh, real quickly interject real quick, Dr. Uh, Ren. First of all, let me say, um, dude, you're like, you got to stay on Clubhouse, man. <laughs> you're going to love Clubhouse. The way you're speaking right? and even the way you're navigating, like you're talking about a piece, if I have any questions. Right. You're talking about the future and what, you know, cities could look like and be like, this is, you know, you're, you're going to love this place and the, and the mines in here. So so we're, we're happy to have you on here and um, like hang out, you know, <laughs> you could just put it in the background at times, especially throughout the day. Like these the the folks in here are, are, are you know, great minds and, and uh, this is this is going to be pretty fun. But during this time, hey, guys, just, you know, let's do like housekeeping real quick. If you can all just uh, if you're, especially if you're new here. Follow the club at the top, the little house, Science Society. Click that. Go ahead and hit a follow. And if you can, at the bottom of your screen, where you see the little share button, right? You know, bottom left, the little arrow pointing up says nine on there right now. I think so. We've had, what, nine people share? Right? If everybody can just take a second right now and share this room on Clubhouse. I'm really pushing the sharing function here because if we want to get Clubhouse to, like, you know, you know how Clubhouse is, lots of debate rooms, lots of different things, this kind of information, science, it's collaborative, it's educational, it's productive, it's intentional, it's purposeful. Let's get more of this going around. And the way we do that is by sharing this so that others can come in, you know, gather knowledge and information, and then also uh, help, you know, show and guide folks how to have nice, productive rooms. So thank you for that. And uh, with that, I'll pass it back over to Dr. Ren. Thank you so much. Uh, let me uh, go back to the clubhouse and then for the presentation part. Uh, okay. So, uh, okay, uh, let's move on to slide three. Uh, and uh, as I said, what I'm going to present today is mainly on foreign uh, outside single crystals. I'm so sorry I spotted a, a typo. Uh, should it be BAS, single crystals, not sync crystals. <laughs> and then also I'm going to mainly talk about the thermal conductivity and mobility. Okay, let's move on the uh, slide four. So thermal conductivity, I noted this uh, earlier on already. Thermal conductivity is controlled by two parts, many uh, electronic thermal conductivity, kappa E, and also phononic thermal conductivity by kappa L. Uh, electronic ones, uh, it's very much related to the uh, electrical carrier concentration. 
uh, also uh, so basically carrier concentration determines the uh, electrical conductivity, which is why uh, in materials like you have copper, silver, gold, aluminum, which has very high electrical conduct conductivity and then gives you thermal conductivity about like 400, around 400 at room temperature. But that's not really that high in comparison with like diamond. Diamond has over 2000. And then, but the diamond in thermal conductivity really comes from the phononic part, copper L. You know, copper L is related to like specific heat, uh, the mean free pass of the phonon uh, you know, group velocity, all sorts of those things, uh, clearly. You know, traditionally, uh, high thermal conductivity of any crystals from the phononic part uh, really de determined by four uh, sense, four factors. This is by uh, Snack uh, back in 1970s pointing out. Uh, the material has to be single, as a very simple uh, crystal structure, like a diamond. Uh, also, the has to have a no anhydricity, so that means the phonon uh, scattering has to be very low in the in the crystal, uh, and also uh, normally it's a low average atomic mass. Uh, you know, in the periodic table, like boron, carbon, those kind of light elements. Okay, and of course. They have to have very strong interatomic uh, bonding. Uh, otherwise, uh, you don't. The heat is not going to be able to transmit it from, you know, lattice point to point. That's how the thermal conductivity. And uh, let's move on to slide five. Uh, here I'm giving you a table which shows that the uh, thermal conductivity materials now so-called high thermal conductivity materials available. Uh, in literature. So first, of course, is diamond. Uh, as you can see, diamond has room temperature uh, like 2200 something. And then the other slash number 3400, that's the isotope pure. Uh, if you spend a lot of money, uh, purify the carbon uh, instead of carbon 11, you can have carbon 12. Uh, and then you have either 11 or 12, and you are going to have higher thermal conductivity, but the cost is much higher. Uh, on the other hand, you have other materials like graphite, uh, which also has pretty high thermal conductivity, but only in two directions, in the plane. You know, graphite are flakes, right? Uh, perpendicular plane to the plane is very low, only a few. And then, of course, there is also one-dimensional materials, carbon. A lot of high uh, thermal conductive materials uh, related to no, uh, you know, small uh, uh, like carbon. Graph uh, carbon nanotubes has a one-dimensional thermal conductivity over six thousand, and then of course you have also boron nitride, silicon carbide. All those either, if you really look at this, the iso, not too many materials here is isotropic. You know, diamond is isotropic at over 2000. Silicon is very low, only 140 something. And then graphite, carbon nanotube, uh, you know, cubic boron nitride, they are all two dimensional or one dimensional, the thermal conductivity is low. And the next is really isotropic ones like copper, silver, silicon carbide, they are all lower than 500. So anyway, between 500 and 2200, there's no single material has 
isotropic thermal conductivity in that range. So which is why uh, anytime if you can make uh, isotropic high thermal conductivity materials, it's going to be very interesting. So let's move on, move to slide six. Uh, this I'm going to show you, say, it's a periodic table. As you can see, I showed you the materials. Often high thermal materials are focused on boron, carbon, and nitrogen. A little bit like silicon, not much. And then any other heavy elements, uh, materials made by heavy elements, normally thermal conductivity is no. So move on to uh, slide seven. This is very surprising. Back in 2013, uh, when my former colleague, David Bruido, uh, called me, told, told me saying that, Zifeng, I predicted through calculation, I found the boron arsenide could have thermal conductivity higher than diamond above room temperature, which is showing on the left panel. Uh, and uh, wow, I was saying, this is unbelievable. If your prediction is, is true and uh, you are going to change the world. But uh, uh, nevertheless, how, how can we prove it? So first I asked him, why is this so? Then he told me, uh, he was showed on this right panel uh, on this slide. He said that the reason for that is because the phonon dispersion is very different for this new material. So normally you would not think boron and arsenic because arsenic is heavy. And you have a light element boron, you have a heavy element arsenic. Normally thermal conductivity is not going to be high at all, okay? Uh, but this, through his calculation, he said he found out that this material somehow is very strange. They have the phonon, optical phonons, and also the acoustic phonons separated by a big gap. Uh, that gap made the acoustic phonon uh, interference with the uh, like uh, with optical phonons very small. Uh, so basically, three phonons uh, is only uh, it's even not reachable to the optical. Uh, and then at that time, he did not consider four phonons, uh, which is why uh, he said the high thermal conductivity is possible. So with that, and then we immediately started to try to look into how to make it. So let's move on to slide seven or oh, slide eight. So I started you know, doing research anything. If you want to do, you have to look at the literature to say who has done what in the past. And through little research, we found that back in 1958, there was a paper. This is a full paper. The whole paper is this much, uh, half a page of the journal. Uh, and it says that uh, he was, uh, this group was making uh, three, five uh, compounds. And he reported here boron phosphide and boron arsenide. So basically he made this material and found the crystal structure is cubic structure and also X-ray diffraction, powder diffraction peaks uh, for two materials. And that's all, the whole paper, it's amazing uh, without any other properties reported. But then if you move on to slide nine, <clears throat> since after 1958 to 71, and more than 10 years, there's no second paper report anything on this material. Uh, until uh, this paper in 1971, 
says that, uh, well, the, it is a semiconductor with a band gap about 1.6, 1.4 EVA. And also with the mobility here says that anywhere between 100 to 400, uh, very small, very low, in fact. Uh, it's not too low, in fact, but not very high, okay? So then after that, there's no other paper about boron arsenide. So then we started looking into this single crystal growth. And when we look at it into it, we found that let's move on to slide 10. Uh, we found it's very difficult to grow single crystals of boron arsenide. The reason is, big, is the following. Boron has a very high melting point, over 2000 degrees C. Chemically, basically chemically very also stable. On the other hand, arsenic uh, does not have a melting point, does not melt. Instead, it goes from solid uh, to gas at 615 degrees C. Very toxic and also very volatile. So just think about it. You have a solid, very high melting point. You have a, another material which is vapor uh, at above 600 degrees C. And how are you going to make them to grow single crystal? It's tough. But of course, you can start thinking of use diborin or arsen, uh, use both you know, chemicals, uh, they then decompose and then form boron arsenide. But the issue is, as you know, a lot of people in semiconductors, you know, arsenic, diborin, arsen, extremely dangerous. Uh, if you have one ppm, one part per million concentration in air, and that kills you. So we do a lot of wanted to get into those kind of nasty gases. And then we started to look at, still look at the uh, solid. And then on top of all those issues, another issue is the boron arsenide itself. We look at the phase diagram. It decomposed at about 920 degrees C. So chemically, it's not stable above that temperature. So with that, it basically tells us if you want to grow single crystals, you have to maintain the temperature below 920. Otherwise, it's not possible. So with that, and then we move on to slide 11. Our first try is sort of successful, but not really a big success. And we made some crystals use a chemical vapor deposition way or chemical vapor transport way, in fact, to be precise. We use some iodine. Uh, to react with boron or add a reactor with arsenic and those vapors transport from the hot side to a, a colder place and that has to be below 920 degrees c and we made some crystals and as you can see here in the picture and then uh, we measured in, co in collaboration with uh, gang chen's group at mit we measured thermal conductivity about 200 watts per meter per kelvin uh, which is definitely not as high as predicted over 2000, uh, but it's a good start. And the reason for that low thermal conductivity, obviously, is the crystal quantity is low. As you can see from this picture, uh, in the picture A, you can see it's not really single crystal, a lot of, uh, it's like two domains, uh, really. And so, and then we kept improving the growth process. Uh, one thing is when we look at the uh, move to slide 12, please. Uh, 
when you have multiple domains inside a crystal, that means there are two or three multiple nucleation happens. So how to make eliminate the multiple nucleates and so that only a single nucleation site is happening. And that's the way we start to, to do it. So we were using either as grown born arsenic as a seed, or we use other seeds like uh, quartz, uh, fibers, and with other fibers we have been using. And then move on to uh, next slide, slide, slide 13. You know, use by controlling the nucleation number of nucleation sites, we were able to get single piece crystals. Like in the picture C, you can see it's already, that's a, uh, definitely from a single nucleation site, you get a crystal. So then we were able to measure thermal conductivities, uh, you know, close to somewhere 350 uh, in that range. It's almost double the previous number, but still not as high as uh, the 2000 predicted. Well, research is never easy and also uh, it's never going to be that quick. So we continued uh, the improvement. Let's move to uh, slide 14. And uh, back to, we started in 2013, by the time like 2017, 2016, 2017, we were able to make crystals much bigger and it looks like much better in this picture. Uh, you can see a few millimeters uh, lens or dimension. And they are indeed uh, single crystals in the X-ray diffraction uh, pattern. You can see this uh, because it's cubic structure, uh, very often the surface is the one 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 surface. You can see only the one 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 two 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 or other three 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 surface are uh, detected here by the X-ray diffraction. Uh, move on, please, to the uh, slide uh, fifteen. So with those kind of larger crystals, we were able uh, to measure the transport properties. So what we did is here we use the silicon. Uh, at the lower uh, picture, you have a, we have a silicon as a standard reference sample, and then uh, thermally connected with our born arsenide. And then we have a heater, uh, we have a heat sink. We basically build a uh, thermal gradient. So because we put this whole thing inside a vacuum uh, chamber uh, with whatever the heat passed through the silicon, it has to pass through the born arsenide. But of course, there is some heat leakage through the measurement wires. On both silicon and boron arsenide, we have uh, two pairs of thermal couples we measure the temperature so that we know the temperature gradient. And also we measure the, uh, the uh, transport, uh, thermal transport in that way. So based on the equation, obviously, we know everything about the silicon and then we should be able to uh, calculate what's the transport properties of the born arsenide. As you can see at the beginning, uh, we were not able to get very high uh, thermal conductivity uh, because this is a macro scale, notch scale measurement. And uh, <clears throat> let's move on to uh, next slide, uh, slide uh, 16. So on this slide, I'm showing you the multiple methods measure thermal conductivity like the TDTR, FDTR, Raman, also uh, transport. So basically the crystals at that time, we grow some crystals, multiple methods measure the thermal conductivity around a thousand. The highest could be somewhere 1200, close to 1300. 
and the lowest uh, what low could be very low uh, a few hundred okay so that is the first demonstration uh boron arsenide indeed can have very high thermal conductivity but why is not close to 2000 as predicted yet as you can see here uh, later on theoretical prediction found uh, the original prediction over 2000 because without it consider the four foulon uh, scattering effect uh, later when they uh, add the four foulon uh, into the picture and they found the theoretical thermal conductivity should be somewhere probably 13 1400 so now the experimental data uh, sort of proved uh, it's very close but one thing i want to point out here is uh, i never believed uh, this material will have this limit by this theory because the current crystal we have it's highly highly defective uh, with this highly defective crystals if we already get the thermal conductivity close to theoretical prediction I think then the theoretical prediction it's not accurate uh, because as soon as we get rid of all the defects I I have the full hope the thermal conductivity will be over uh, you know, 2000 uh, that's let's say when it's it's not a matter of whether or that will happen to me it's just a matter of when that will happen uh, so I fully believe in that let's move on to uh, slide 17 you know over after that report back in 2018 and then we continued to improve the crystal growth so in the lower left <coughs> picture so here I'm showing you if I have a cord fiber and if the fiber act as the nuclei, uh, nucleation site the crystals normally nucleate on the fiber. When it grows, it grows radially to the quartz tube, to the wall. And the quartz tube is only about uh, six millimeters in diameter. Uh, that means your crystals will be limited not more than six millimeters. And uh, what if we can reposition the quartz fiber instead of horizontally, uh, but if vertically, uh, so if you look at it, because in fact I have an animation, but it's since this platform cannot show the animation, so I can only show you the picture. Uh, please move to uh, slide 18. So when I, uh, the top left uh, picture, the orange bar at the right end of the uh, quartz tube, and then I put the uh, bar vertically, <clears throat> and now if the crystal grow out of the uh, quartz bar and it along the quartz uh, tube direction and then I should be able to grow crystals larger than uh, six millimeters indeed <clears throat> so here is a, a picture I'm showing you in the middle top uh, row middle it's a seven millimeter uh, crystal grown and if you look at it, the right of, of uh, uh, the right of it it's the quartz tube <clears throat> and the, the crystal grow from left to right and then when it heated the quartz inside the wall, and then the, the top part is continued to grow, the bottom part stopped. And that's very uh, vivid, showing the nucleation and the growth. 
on the lower right uh, picture, I'm showing you taking out from the quartz tube. This bar is a quartz bar, and the crystals grow on top of the quartz bar, and multiple crystals grow in different directions. And those uh, crystals have shown thermal conductivity measured in the table uh, above 1200 uh, watts per meter per Kelvin. We also tried other uh, nucleation sites like gallium arsenide, uh, silicon, sapphire. <clears throat> and it turns out the gallium arsenide uh, is similar to quartz tube, again, yield the high thermal conductivity. Uh, but the silicon uh, and also sapphire uh, give us much lower uh, thermal conductivity due to contamination from uh, either aluminum, oxygen, or silicon. So on the right column, uh, we showed the transport measurement is a mobility is a few hundred. Again, that's because the uh, non-uniformity of the of the sample. So if you look at to slide, uh, we'll move on to slide 19. Uh, that further shows the uh, larger uh, scale, shows the crystal size, and whatever I showed in the previous slide. Okay, I'm not going to repeat that. Uh, you know, thermal conductivity is very much related to isotopy effect. Uh, as I pointed out in earlier, diamond, uh, it's carbon. Carbon has carbon like 11, carbon 12. I think carbon also even has carbon 13. I'm not 100% sure. And if you have uh, isotope pure, you get over 3,000 thermal conductivity. So what about uh, boron arsenide? So how the, uh, the isotope were uh, affected the thermal conductivity? From the uh, in in you know simple physics from the simple physics point of view, uh, the isotope effect should not be strong because whatever boron ten versus boron eleven, the mass difference there is a small fraction of the whole chemical weight because you have arsenic. You know, arsenic has the atomic mass much. Uh, larger than boron. Uh, but still, we would like to test it, this uh, uh, hypothesis. So which is why we grow uh, boron isotope pure single crystals here. And, uh, and then we tested the uh, thermal conductivity at the lower uh, left table. As you can see, pure boron 11 and pure boron 10 both have thermal conductivity uh, about 1,200 which is very similar to the natural boron, also 1200. So this is a great advantage for future applications because uh, you know, if you can use natural boron and your cost will be much, much lower than the isotope pure. This is very important. Okay, let's move on, uh, on slide 21. So on this slide, I'm showing you another, this is a summary basically. Uh, recent, recently, also as recent as last year, uh, Gang's group, uh, we together proved that cubic boron nitride, by the way, cubic boron nitride does not have bigger crystals. Uh, they were made by uh, diamond anvil cell. Uh, it's only micron, some micron size, high temperature, high pressure, just like a uh, diamond is made. And then also they made the isotope uh, carbon 
10 and then isocarbon uh, 11, uh, boron nitride, and also natural boron uh, nitride, carbon uh, boron. So now you can see the isotope pure has thermal conductivity over 1500, but a natural boron nitride, cubic boron nitride, it's less than 1000. Uh, not like the lower panel, boron arsenide has basically insensitive to the isotope uh, concentration. Again, as I said, this is very important. Not only the synthesis method, uh, boron arsenide, uh, you can make large size, but also the property is very uh, unique. And then uh, move on to slide 22. Very often, uh, diamond and other materials, their coefficient of thermal expansion property is also not ideal, not matched well with other semiconductors. Uh, here, I'm showing you on the right panel, you can see there are different kinds of semiconductors, like gallium arsenide, aluminum arsenide, uh, silicon, and others, diamond boron, cubic boron nitride. They are either very small, uh, CTE or very large, like gallium arsenide. Uh, not like uh, boron arsenide. Boron arsenide has you know, CTE around four times 10 to minus six per Kelvin, which is very uh, close to uh, like silicon and with other materials. This is also a big plus for uh, future uh, electronics manufacturing and also lifetime same. And if you move on to next uh, slides, so we were studying when we were studying the crystals, <coughs> we found uh, sometimes we get uh, uh, band gap measurement is different from the theoretical calculation. The theory calculated uh, says that uh, the band gap should be two point one eV, but very often our measurement is anywhere from one point eight to two point, you know. 2.1, uh, it's not consistent, multiple band gaps. So we did a uh, in collaboration with uh, Professor Shi Li at UT Austin. We took a boron arsenide crystal and they measured the uh, band gap from uh, the edge surface to surface. So basically across the cross section. And what they found is close to the surface, the band gap is about 1.9 EVA, and in the middle, it's about 2.11, 2.1 EV. What does this say? You know, well, this to me immediately tells me our crystal on the surface, it's not, there are defects. And inside probably they're much uh, pure and also should give us higher thermal conductivity. Uh, but up to now, our thermal conductivity measurement all are on surface. So this is why uh, earlier I was saying, I will. it's not a matter of whether it will happen or not, it's a matter of time, when it will happen, thermal conductivity will be higher than 2000. And I have all the confidence that will happen and because the uh, quantity, okay. And uh, so we have been moving on to uh, slide 24. We have been improving the crystal step by step you know, uh, this is a tedious, uh, it's a time consuming thing, uh, the growth wise. As you can see here, some crystals in the middle, 
pretty uniform. Uh, Size-wise, a few millimeters, and uh, we have been, uh, uh, you know, trying to improve the crystal. Move on to next slide, slide 25. And we have also, as you can see, the TDTR measurement is very time consuming. You have to deposit a, a, a inducing uh, induction layer and then to do the TDTR measurement. And we were thinking, is there any way we can quickly screen the thermal conductivity? And we found that in, uh, indeed we could use the so-called time uh, domain uh, or time dependent uh, thermal photoluminescence measure. And so basically, if you have you shine laser light to the surface of a crystal, if the thermal conductivity wherever, because anywhere they absorb the energy, uh, the temperature will rise. If the thermal conductivity is very high, and then the temperature will rise to a very limited <clears throat> number. And if the thermal conductivity is very low, and the temperature will rise more. <clears throat> so here I'm showing you in panel D, uh, and uh, the two samples with the blue and red, uh, thermal conductivity only 200 something, and the temperature rise uh, is lower than the other uh, thermal conductivity is 160 watts per meter per kilo. So basically with that, and then we can quickly scan or screen in the crystal quantity. And the next slide, uh, 26, <clears throat> showing you uh, the, we were doing the scanning. We found um, uh, a crystal on both sides. They are different. And even on the same side, uh, the uniformity uh, is also not that good. Uh, in like P2, we have lower thermal conductivity, about 400. P1, we have thermal conductivity close to 700. And in the other region, lower uh, color, red color, uh, thermal conductivity is over 1100. So that means, again, the crystal is not uniform. Uh, but we do have this way quickly screen the, uh, the, the quantity of crystal, which also can feed back to our growth effort, try to change the growth parameters. And uh, move on to slide 27. I'm going to be done very soon, OK? Uh, tw slide 27, as you can see, uh, with better and better crystals back in 2019, we were able to only measure the uh, band gap about 1.8 EV. Uh, by 2020, uh, we will be able to measure band gap, some good crystals already uh, close to the theoretical 2.1 EV. Okay, so uh, move on to the next slide, 28. Uh, this is a, uh, the most recent. Uh, report in science about the high mobility. We use a pump and probe method, and basically you uh, inject uh, energy by uh, laser beam, and you pump the electrons from the venous band to the conduction band, and then they will diffuse, uh, they will move. And based on how fast they move, and then we can calculate the uh, mobility. So here we cannot differentiate uh, uh, the electrons from the holes because they move basically together. And also in this material, both uh, mobility, the mobility of both the electrons and the holes are high. Uh, the predicted value of electrons is 1400 and the 
holes are 2100. And so by measuring, uh, by also simulation, we found uh, indeed we have unbipolar mobility 1500. Uh, that's basically very close to the uh, theoretical. Uh, theoretical prediction the bipolar should be 1660. So our measurement is 1550. This is a collaboration between my group and uh, Professor Jimmy Bao's group here at the University of Houston, and also Professor uh, Liu Xinfeng's group in China. Uh, the reason for that is because the first order, as you can see here in the paper, uh, Sua Yue was a postdoc uh, in Professor Bao's group, after he finished his work here in University of Houston, he brought some sample back to China and then used some uh, more advanced uh, method there and then found this high mobility. At the same time, if you move on to slide 29, uh, Gang Chen's group, uh, in fact, uh, uh, predicted the high mobility, current mobility in 2018 and published a paper, theoretical paper then. Uh, but ever since we have been collaborating, try to measure the high uh, mobility, uh, and then by uh, er, next, last year, in fact, close to end of last year and earlier uh, this year, and indeed uh, we were able to confirm the high uh, mobility. Not only high mobility, and his measurement is also he can measure the same spot uh, of the current mobility and also the thermal conductivity. If you look at the uh, lower row of the uh, two panels in panel A, as you can see here, it shows that the thermal conductivity uh, is over a thousand, and also at the same time the current mobility is over uh, fifteen hundred. Uh, that's in fact the first time have the same spot measured both high thermal conductivity and high current mobility. Uh, this is absolutely uh, important and uh, for a semiconductor. So now let me summarize. Uh, oh no, uh, I still have a couple more slides. Not just, not too many more, just a couple. So at the same time, as I said, we here at the University of Houston, we have been trying to measure the uh, transport by Hall effect. And here I'm showing you the sample, how the sample is mounted. And they transport across a longer distance, normally at least two millimeters, not like the optical way by either Gang Chen's group or uh, Jimmy Bao's group use optically. Optically only measure local region, uh, you know, a few or ten, less than 100 uh, square microns. And, but the transport measures uh, uniformity of the sample. But we were not able to measure that high, like above a thousand. The highest we measure so far is about 700. Okay, uh, move to, uh, so with that, I basically let me summarize what I talked about the boron arsenide. So normally, a semiconductor, as you know, either silicon or gallium arsenide or other, other materials. There's no semiconductor has high thermal conductivity, has high mobility, has also wider band gap, and also has very friendly or matching uh, CTE. But born arsenide has all properties together. So this is unbelievable. Uh, this is why we are going to pursue, continues to pursue uh, this material. And I believe uh, this material will be better than silicon, probably. Uh, I'm not saying, you know, near term five years, you are going to use boron arsenide everywhere. No, that's not what I'm telling you. What I'm saying is this material is very promising. 
uh, we did another more efforts, not only uh, efforts, research efforts, but a lot of people financial support and to really get this material grown in much larger size, much higher, uh, much more uniform with much higher quality and uh, to show even higher thermal conductivity, I have the belief the thermal conductivity will be above diamond, higher diamond. The mobility will be because both electron and holes are about the same and it will be much higher than silicon and it's even higher than the uh, gallium arsenide, probably somewhere 3,000 range or even hopefully 5,000, I don't know, but definitely they will be higher than the current 1,500. So I'm very hopeful and uh, I now I will stop here. If you have any questions, I would be more than happy to discuss and then try my best to answer your question. Thank you. Great, great. Thank you, Dr. Ren. Quick question. Eli, uh, Eli, you there? Yeah. Hello, dude. I just noticed you got in, man. It's good to see you, brother. I haven't seen you in a while, man. Um, how long have you been in the room for? Um, I just joined like uh, at slide 20 or so. Pretty, not not very long. Not very long. Okay. But you got a gist of what's going on, right? Yeah. So, I, I mean, my, my question uh, was... Wait, Oh, this is what I'm saying. So, like, so Dr. Ren, Eli is one of my favorite people on, on Clubhouse as well as a lot of others, right? So, it'd be just nice for the rest of us now. This is a good time to go get your popcorn, stick it inside of uh, your microphone. And we'll have uh, Eli and Dr. Ren just converse together. <laughs> I just want to hear you two talk, man. This is going to be uh, interesting. You know, go ahead. Like, not just one question, but like, have an interaction, bro. You know? Yeah, sure. Well, well, so thank you. I'm I'm kind of distracted right now, so I don't know how deeply I can engage. But um, uh, one thing that that came to mind is, uh, and and I hope it I didn't miss this. If you if you addressed it, um, what do you see as the potential for photovoltaic applications uh, as part of uh, uh, multi-junction photovoltaics? Or, or, or just by by itself tuned to to specific uh, the, the the corresponding uh, optical uh, wave band. That's a very good question. Uh, for photovoltaic, as you know, uh, you since you're asking this question, I would think you are definitely expert in photovoltaic. I had some experience, some research on photovoltaic. Right now, uh, the most uh, used photovoltaic material is silicon. As you know, silicon has the issue. Uh, one thing is the band gap. Uh, silicon band gap is only 1.1 EV. Now, with 1.1 EV, solar uh, spectra has the UV, ultra UV part that will generate uh, so-called hot electrons. And the silicon, uh, when temperature goes up and the band gap further decreases, uh, then you, that's why the hot electron is not good to the to 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 the uh, silicon. Now, use the uh, boron arsenide. The band gap is two point one EV. If this one is, you know, put together, use a multi junction with silicon, and, and it will be uh, much more beneficial to convert the high energy part of the uh, solar uh, spectrum. 
uh, sort of you know gallium arsenide. You can dope different kind of gallium arsenide. You have triple junction. You get efficiency over like forty percent. Uh, so with boron arsenide and it itself, we don't know uh, itself how high the efficiency it would be, uh, because even though you take care of the hot electron part, uh, but you lose the non-wavelength part. Uh, I, I did not do a calculation, but I would think just the boron arsenide alone probably uh, will be uh, close to silicon, or if not better, will be close. And then if you add silicon together as a you know double junction, and you have a hope probably get to gallium arsenide, uh, which will be much cheaper than gallium arsenide. Yeah, that's that would have been my guess. So I'm glad glad to hear that's that's your intuition. Um, the other thing that that I think is potentially attractive here is the the combination of high electron and whole mobilities. Um, my guess is, and, and maybe you could correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that would um, reduce the, the uh, loss of efficiency due to uh, recombina ch charge carrier recombination. Of course, that's absolutely right. You are, you are, you are there. You're right on spot. Uh, with this high uh, carrier concentration, uh, no, carrier mobility, and you can relax the uh, the thickness a little bit, so that uh, you can have much higher absorption than silicon, uh, much lower recombination uh, rate. In fact, our data shows that the uh, the carriers of boron arsenide excited carriers uh, have much longer uh, lifetime uh, than silicon. So that means you. The, the, all the excited carriers will be harvested instead of recombined. So in that sense, and then this, the efficiency should be higher. Yeah, I, I hope it turns out that way because this does seem quite promising. Yeah. Um, uh, so I've, I've done some, uh, uh, and, and this is, you know, just really preliminary calculations. Um, uh, on on mechanis uh, uh, excuse me density functional calculations of uh, uh, mechanosynthesis uh, positional mechanosynthesis where you're using molecular tools uh, to manipulate things and building things up atom by atom molecule by molecule um, not of, obviously of uh, boron arsenide I have done uh, some with uh, boron nitride and and uh, uh, for the cubic phase, it's it's. Uh, I I'm not confident that it'll work out at least by the strategy that I've I've chosen. Though though there are still more strategies to evaluate. But I'm I'm going to you know at some point, and it, this will probably be months before I have the time. Uh, um, try similar things with. Uh, uh, boron arsenide, and and you know maybe we can be in touch about that. I it's. I kind of it's 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 hard to extrapolate from from what I've seen so far with boron nitride uh, because boron uh, at a surface it, it it really wants to grab anything that gets close and I kind of uh, expect that it would be even worse with uh, with arsenide just because uh, um, that's lower electronegativity than 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 nitrogen. 
but but uh, it, it's it's a challenge that I'm looking forward to 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 poking at. Well, uh, for that aspect, so, so, uh, I have not looked into that uh, uh, in detail. Uh, but one thing I want to point out is, uh, uh, you know, boron nitride, uh, cubic boron nitride or diamond, all those things are very wide band gap, much wider than than this. So definitely, sort of, we call it insulator, right? Uh, it may not be useful at all for photovoltaic application, but it, of course, if you're not talking about photovoltaic, that's okay. Uh, another thing I want to point out is uh, boron arsenide, it's very chemical, uh, very chemical resistant. What we are doing is when we grow the crystals in a quartz ample, and then when we take it out, how do we take the crystal out? We drop everything into aqua regia. As you know, aqua regia is so, so reactive, even reacting with gold, right? But, but boron arsenide <laughs> survives. So that's how we, we clean boron arsenide. And in this way, it has another, I didn't talk about this during my presentation, it has another feature, which is not too many materials has. That's pretty remarkable. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it, it, it's um, the, the boron uh, nitride stuff is, is not for, for electronic properties, at least not, uh, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in the modal case, uh, it's for, for structural and high temperature and chemical resistance exactly. uh, that I've been interested in. Yeah, it's not so much as a, um, as a uh, functional materials, boron nitride, cubic boron nitride and diamond. It's more like structural materials. But the boron arsenide, boron arsenide it is exactly. really a semiconductor, it's a functional materials. And as you can see in this world, we do need the structural materials and also functional materials. Uh, but, uh, you know, structural materials, we do have a lot of them very good. Uh, but it's, for the functional materials, so far, electronic silicon is the most popular. But what's next step? You know, next material for high power electronics, uh, really, boron oxide probably will be the future for that. Well, certainly, certainly, it's it's a good contender. Uh, I mean, the 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 high uh, mobility for both holes and electrons is is unique and promising. Yeah, and also the high thermal conductivity. Well, th thank you, and 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 perhaps I will be in touch with you uh, in in future months uh, if if I take on the the mechanosynthesis of. Uh, um, uh, positional nanomechanosynthesis of uh, boron arsenide. Sure. Anytime if you uh, need uh, anything, you can send me an email. Great. Thanks. All right. So like at this point in the convo, how about we try to, because, you know, we got like a lot of scientists in here, but we also got a, a technologist that, you know, uh, can get deep into conversation. Um, and then we've also got folks that, you know, can't get so deep into the into the technical side, but maybe we can talk about, let's talk about applications, right? Especially with like Eli here or others uh, in the room, right? It'd be nice based on, you know, Dr. Ren's presentation here. Let's kind of throw this out to the room. What are, what are some applications or, you know, what are some things that will change with 
this technology as as you guys see it based on his presentation maybe we'll have uh eli you can maybe head that uh head that up what are some applications you see uh some ideas you might have for dr ren here go ahead and then others can chime in well i mean the, the first was photovoltaics and we, we already discussed that um uh and i would imagine that uh um high electron mobility transistors would be pretty high on the list. Uh, and again, for like power applications, as was mentioned, um, I haven't really thought about it uh, in, in enough depth to, to go much beyond that. So I'll, I'll just pass that to anybody else who, who can say anything more intelligent than me. Just definitely fast uh, electronics, high power electronics will be the uh, immediate consideration. Yeah, so um, I read an article that came out um, in the news that Intel, I think some somebody in Intel said that with the current computing power, we cannot achieve all the plans we have, like the metaverse and having all the data on blockchains and uh, that it's kind of unrealistic. So would your technology basically be able to address that and then also would um would would it also address the the semiconductor shortages that we currently have like how far along is it also to like um to to use it um like did did you get some money from our current president to to put that into work for the current sort and to develop this here in the US to manufacture it here in the US? Uh well, uh this is a, a very early stage, is a very early stage of the research. Uh it's very promising, uh with all sorts of properties we talked about. Uh, fast electronics, high power electronics, uh, heat dissipation. Uh, when you talk about uh, high power electronics, there's always heat generated. In the past, if it's silicon based or other semiconductor based, and you have to uh, find a way to dissipate the heat. Uh, but for this material, because it's, uh, its own thermal conductivity is so high, uh, you may not have that issue at the same time due to the faster. Uh, high current mobility, uh, your heat generation also be due to the uh, very high band gap, large band gap. The heat generation itself will be, I think it will be smaller, much smaller. And uh, even if it does generate the heat and then you have the high thermal conductivity, it will uh, dissipate very uh, quickly. And uh, for the uh, semiconductor shortage wise, this is not uh, immediate material ready for use yet and still require a lot of more research and a lot of more funding for uh for, to make it or to prove whether it's going to be able to realize, realize all the promises and as far as the funding uh, uh honestly tell you the truth we used to have federal government funding uh this program in fact uh, I started it with my own funding, other funding sources, and later on we got funding from the U.S. Navy uh, uh, Office of Naval Research, and that program uh, has uh, run out. Uh, right now, I don't have any funding uh, on this project. 
uh, I'm just doing this research myself, use my other sources, uh, low federal government funding. Uh, so. Oh, wow, that's, that's, that's quite sad that you, that you don't get funding for this. I mean, funding should be all over you to, um, you know, to get this. So is this also going to, what's about the size? Um, would I know the th this would be good for uh, temperature control and what about the size and the weight um, would it be better for like small drones and and um, applications like that uh, the uh, the size wise uh, uh, they of course depends on your uh, device uh, the density of this material is not that uh, high as you can see boron is night right uh, you are thinking you, boron arsenic is a one one ratio here. Boron is nicer than silicon, and arsenic is heavier heavier than silicon. Uh, but at the end, I think uh, I, I don't have the density number in front of me. Uh, I think the density probably similar to uh, silicon. Uh, so for any like application uh, mass, if it's a concern. Uh, probably it will not be too big a problem uh, because it's not too much heavier than silicon. Yeah, thank you. Um, does anyone else have questions? I, I have a question. Uh, yeah. Can I ask you? Yeah. Thank you, uh, Dr. Sen, for the wonderful presentation. And uh, yeah, by me, uh, my background is a PhD in microelectronics, and I work on uh, self-powered sensors, mostly for IoT applications. And also, we work on energy harvesting, uh, like photovoltaics or thermoelectrics, etc. So uh, my question is: uh, uh, Is it like uh, how is it like you, you are talking about the band gap? Is it direct band gap, or I think it's you're talking about the indirect band gap? It is. The, it is the indirect band gap at two point one EV. The direct band gap is four, uh, four EV. Okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, and uh, uh, one question uh, uh, already. Eddie has asked about the application for uh, photovoltaics. And along with it, uh, I see it's uh, also a good thermoelectric uh, material. It could have. Uh, yeah. So my my my, my question is: uh, the silicon is uh, widely used in the industry because of the compatibility with MAMS or with the uh, you know the AC can be more easily integrated. So my question is: how uh, compatible is it with the industrial process right now? Because uh, can it be as robust as silicon or? That's so, thank you. Yeah, the uh, about the compatibility, uh, there are a lot of compatibility factors, uh, structurally, uh, you know, mechanical property wise, uh, physical property wise, all sorts of those things. All I can tell you is so far as though as as far as I know is the the material itself is mechanically stronger than silicon. Uh, we did the hardness measurement. Uh, it's definitely much stronger in silicon, and also uh, it's uh, it's more chemically uh, resistant. As I said, uh, we born arsenide survived uh, survives in aquaregia, which that will melt gold, dissolve gold in fact. 
uh, and the also the thermal uh, coefficient of thermal expansion uh, matched very well with the uh, other semiconductors. And at the same time, uh, the fabrication at this time, because we have not we what we know is it can be made in large size, and after it's made, and then I would think uh, should be able to be compatible. Then you can do a lot of processing on top of that, uh, either uh, you know, two terminals, three terminals, whatever the devices you are going to process. So I I just expect uh, probably not too big a problem. But I don't know the detail before somebody really take it and then give it a try. Uh, so that that's my current uh, thinking. Just just a question uh, regarding the arsenic. Uh, do you think it's to toxic and it can be as uh, you know access successful as uh, silicon in the long run? So the arsenic itself, when it's in vapor, of course it's toxic. But when arsenic formed a compound with boron, uh, the compound itself is fairly stable. Uh, we have been uh, aligning the sample, the material boron arsenide at anywhere five, 600 degrees C. Uh, there's no uh, vaporization of arsenic at all. So I don't think there is, there is a problem. Thank you very much. I have a question also. Um, you basically talked about the, you know, temperature control. Um, how does it behave in water or at a low temperature, if that makes sense? So, uh, yeah, as I said, uh, this material is very stable uh, and also very uh, chemically resistant to a lot of chemicals and obviously water uh, it's not going to uh, destroy it or degrade it. Uh, that, that is the current uh, uh, understanding. Uh, so temperature and water, uh, temperature as nice, I, I, as I can say right now, as nice it's lower than 700 degrees C, uh, shouldn't it be a problem. Water is not a problem at all. Awesome, awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, hi, uh, Dr. Red. Quick question. Uh, since this is electron-driven, uh, we see that electrons behaves pretty differently when it comes to what crystallism, um, other atoms. Um, uh, do you know any research or do you, do you know anything about um, the conduct? Conductivity when it comes to uh, the position of electron um, going into the nucleus and whatnot. Uh, when it comes to basically energy, yeah. Thank you. Uh, I I'm not sure I fully uh, got your question. Are you asking about the electronic conductivity? Yeah, in general. Oh, in general, okay. So, so far, so far, uh, we have uh, uh, 
done some preliminary uh, measurement, and the carrier concentration is still very high. Uh, normally, it ranges in 10 to 18th to 10 to 20th power, uh, which is why uh, we have not gone to the intrinsic state, uh, which is why also as made crystals is always uh, P-type at this moment. And uh, the conductivity is somewhere uh, in the range of, you know, maybe 10 to negative two power to 10 to positive two power in that range, basically 0 0.01 to like a couple hundred seconds per meter. Uh, and uh, uh, we are, we, we have a uh, idea why it is always P-type. And so far, we have not got, uh, got any crystals showing n-type yet. But I think we know why. And uh, we are going to next try to uh, do some controlled experiment uh, to make it into n-type. As you understand, is any semiconductors, you have to have p-type and n-type. Uh, just one type is not enough. Uh, so that's kind of preliminary uh, measurement we have on the conductivity-wise. And obviously, uh, you have the photo uh, induced conductivity. You shine night, and then, like any typical semiconductors, you uh, excited the electrons from the valence band to the uh, conduction band, and then you get a much higher uh, electrical conductivity. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, does um, anyone else have a question for Dr. Ren? Yeah, you can you can send my uh, email to uh, all the uh, audience. And if they have questions after this, you can always send the emails to me. Dr. Ren, I had a very quick question. That was a great mm -hmm. presentation. I was curious how long it might take to scale this technique to commercial applications like what would it what would it take for this to become standard technology rather than just experimental technology that's a great question <laughs> that as you understand this uh, very well you know this better than me any technology from the lab to the market uh there are uh, two important uh, factors determines it, as I can see this. Number one is the uh, demand, market demand. If the, there is a strong market demand, and then people will try to make it. And then, of course, number two is you have to have a lot of money and to do it. So at this moment, as I said earlier, I don't have any government funding. So the research in my lab uh, is going on. Uh, I can tell you, in fact, in the whole world, uh, this kind of crystals, no other lab has better crystals uh, as far as I know uh, than, than us. Uh, first of all, it's not too many labs are doing this research in the world. Secondly, uh, we still have the best crystal. We know uh, what's going on the crystal growth side. And uh, without the government funding, uh, and then we are making progress, uh, very good progress, but not fast enough. 
uh, obviously, in order to make this uh, NAP technology to application, we still need a lot of people uh, to work on it, and also not a funding uh, to funded people to do it. So, so I, I really can't say how long it will take. Uh, depends on how much funding the private industry uh, will put in. Sure, I understand. Thank you for the mm -hmm. answer. Have you um, thought about submitting for a SBIR grant or a STTR grant? Uh, well, let me let me ask you some of you a question. How many of you know uh, Professor Gang Chen at MIT? Well, the the reason I'm asking that is if you know a little bit about Professor Gang Chen, and he was arrested by FBI very incorrectly by mistake after one year harassment and this year all the indictment all the charges were dropped uh, but that destroyed his career uh, and now anybody if you are not uh, you know originally born in this country or you are not white uh, we are very careful taking the government funding because any government funding will put us in a big risk, uh, I, which for that I, I am reluctant or hesitant to, to take any, write any proposal right now. Yeah, I totally understand. Since they changed, when was it when they changed the rulings that you cannot have any uh, collaborations with um, f foreigners or people that are, you know, moving back to their home country. A friend of mine, she did her PhD project and then went back home to Portugal to finish up uh, writing and analyzing the data to then finish the dissertation. And she got in trouble for the fact that she was analyzing the data in a foreign country. It's crazy because all the research, almost all the research in the US is done by foreigners. We are all immigrants. Look in the lab, go into any lab, almost everyone is an immigrant working on very low wages. And we were all, almost all educated by our home countries. So it's free resources the US is taking in from other countries because they didn't even have to invest in us to do this work, right? All the education was done for me in Europe uh, and paid by Europe, <clears throat> Germany and Portugal and, um, and in, in almost everyone I know. And then they harvest all the highly educated people around the world we do research here and then we cannot even <laughs> collaborate with our home countries. That's, I'm sorry, but that's just exploration. <laughs> and the, the wages are exploration. That's why nobody, like almost no Americans are in research at, at universities because the pay is so low. You couldn't even pay off your student loans uh, with the research job. So I'm sorry, my rent, but um, yeah. <laughs>
Yeah, I asked that question because I actually submitted to the National Science Foundation and they read over the proposal, moved me to a brand new solicitation that was created off of my submission and then asked me to resubmit. So that just seemed very awkward and very weird. You know, if you had enough, if you had enough information that I provided in my submission to create a brand new solicitation, that means that you shouldn't ask any more questions <laughs> if you get what I'm saying. Oh yeah, that's another whole problem that um, some some people get, you know, read the grants and they have a bigger name and just take the grants and you know. So. And do it. Sorry about that, Katarina, but. I'm pretty sure like all of the people or most of the people in this room are quite intelligent and intelligent enough to know why this is actually happening. And um, I haven't heard anyone bring it up. Um, so if you were to actually look at uh, the trends uh, around the world since um, the pandemic, uh, we've been heading towards a Cold War-esque kind of environment around the globe and you would just have to look at the Taiwan Strait right now um, to see that actually take effect. I shared um, just an article from the FBI. Um, there's a lot of counterintelligence and espionage going on in the world today. So um, actually paying attention to the actual state of the world rather than just being immersed in a science textbook would bring one to realize why it is so um, shrouded in controversy and just looking at the semiconductor issue uh, alone uh, one can look at that um, there were confucius institutes that were shut down um, as a result of this as well uh, at several universities. Um, so it shouldn't surprise anybody um, that this is happening. Yeah, it's the same issue over and over, you know? I mean, ultimately, what's, um, it actually creates a great opportunity too, right? Where you just need to create a place where the techies and the scientists and innovators can come and play together uh, like a little playground um, somewhere away from all the mess. You know, you got a lab, you got a makerspace, you got your 3D printers and CNC machines and all your lab equipment you need, you know. And then uh, we just uh, go there and show up and guard the gates. <laughs> That's it. Like create a little gated, yeah, your own gated community, right, of like scientists and engineers and uh you publish things. The solution that I see it as is you just get a bunch of people Then you have to create a sustainable solution. I've thought about it quite a bit now. And it's, uh, you get the brains in there, work on creating licensable tech. That's it. Just one focus. You just create stuff, you give a license to it, license it out, someone else scales it, and, they, and that's kind of the insulating factor. And then you just kind of grow the community and get more equipment and more people in there to kind of just do their own research, be autonomous, do their thing and as groups and just punch out stuff that's licensable that goes out and then comes back into the group as a whole and gets split, you know, into the group that originated it plus the other groups working. So everybody kind of works like it's, it's, um, uh, you know, socialism doesn't work at scale. I don't think I'm pretty sure it doesn't. Um, but in a tiny, 
uh, space in, in a small environment with like like-minded people, you know, a set of rules around that would, I think, I think would work, you know? So, yeah, I mean, it's sad to hear like, you know, I mean, me personally too. I mean, I experienced, I was like, I don't want to take, I, like, there's a lot of funding you don't want to take, right? It's like, no, I don't want to take that funding. I don't want to take that funding. We don't want to take this investor funding. We don't want to be controlled by these people or, okay, they take this government funding and you can't even do anything with the work you've done for the last, what, 20 years or something. Like how long you've been working on this Dr. Ren and you know, how many years? Uh, this uh, particular project is about 10 years. So 10 years. So basically, if you took the wrong funding, then 10 years of your life, just you can't even control how you what you do with 10 years of your life and your research, right? Well, in fact, that's in fact, whatever happened, it happened in the past. What we are afraid most is, you know, since happening to Gang Cheng could happen to anybody. And that's why we are afraid, you know, someday they may arrest me for, for since they say I did it incorrectly, but I didn't do anything wrong. At the end, just like Gang Chen, they harassed him for a whole year and dropped every accusation. And then even they didn't say sorry. This kind of thing is, is scary. Yeah, 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 for sure, man. It, it it's, it's sad, it's right? Sad. It's it's getting, it's and and it's like that for everybody. And then you know, like, what do they do? They put, and then they also put the pressures of putting people under R and D contracts and non competition and non disclosures and all this stuff. And by the time you're done, you're walking around as a scientist. You're a scientist that's supposed to have a free mind and blue sky to innovate and you know, find solutions to problems. You can't talk to any, you can't talk to people outside of here. You can't talk to those people. You can't tell anybody about this research. You can't do this. You know, you should just basically be quiet, work in this little silo and be panicked a lot of times, right? <laughs> you know, um, whether you're saying the right things or wrong things. I mean, is, is it, it's kind of sad how our scientific community especially in corporate America, right? Like the under, they're under R like they can't say anything. If you're in an R and D department inside of a corporate mate, you can't say shit, right? You might as well just like disconnect from the rest of the world when it comes to your specific stuff. You know, it's just, it's just, I've seen this over and over and over and over again. So many of my friends and they're very, very smart working in high level R and D roles because that's where they end up at. You know, the technologists that are really smart, um, you know, are, are either leading other technologists or they're innovating with other technologists and they're all handcuffed and silenced from sp collaborating together. Yeah. So I, I think it's almost done like that on purpose, man, you know, and it's like, it's frustrating, like you said, because, you know, just understanding the basic principles of science, we know that there's infinity con concepts, you know, like, so even if somebody applies for a patent, you know, being as intelligent as we all are, we can look at that patent and figure out ways of doing the same thing with a different type of material potentially. So it's like, what is the, what is the real point sometimes? You know what I mean? I think it's really to keep the less intelligent from reaching intelligence almost, you know what yeah. I mean? So, uh, I no, 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 I'm for, no, hold on. Let me clarify. So, it's, it's less it's, worse than it's, that. It's, so it's, so that so it's so that the less intelligent, uh, find ways to control the more intelligent. <laughs> 
right? Because that's what it is. It's like, look, man, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an entrepreneur. All right, I'm a, I'm a technologist entrepreneur. You guys in here are a whole lot smarter than me when it comes to the science and technology stuff, right? And so, you know, most guys in my position uh, would look at that as a threat and be like, we got to control these people, right? Under contracts. Well, they might be really smart at that, but we're smart at business, right? And people uh, stuff and, and control. So we need to control these people because we can't like replicate. There's only a few of these people. So we got to like, what the hell is this stupid way of thinking? Why don't you say, hey, just take care and support these people and create an environment where they're super happy and, you know, share in the wins and uh, let them collaborate with, like support them and attract more of them by doing that rather than like trying to enslave them. But then again, I mean, we had a, what slavery forever in human history, right? This whole concept of humans enslaving others. So the only way scientists are going to be free, in my opinion, if scientists get together to create a free, the scientists and engineers and technologists, they, they have to kind of get in and create a collective, you know, like, and that's what I think we're all trying to do. We've been talking about that, like me and Eli and Katerina and Lisa and like other folks on here and Kyle, like everybody wants to make that happen, doctor, you know? So, so you know. will you, we're going to try to figure yeah, it out. Absolutely. And doctor, I just want to say quickly that like, I, I really appreciate and enjoy that you're here um, with your time and energy. And so even though I brought up like uh, the reality of the situation, it doesn't at all mean that I don't have any empathy uh, at all for, for your friend um, that was in that terrible situation. It's just time that people wake up and realize the times that they're living in and we can't just get around together and sing kumbaya. This isn't reality. Um, the reality of the situation is that if anyone's interested in technology and science, um, look at what happened to technology and science during the Cold War and then kind of like look at that and then look at today's situation and then wonder, okay, is this time for let's get around the campfire and sing Kumbaya, or is this time to wake people up to the reality of the situation? Because I, I was uh, actually removed from a room um, just uh, sharing information about the genetic data um, and the difference uh, between these uh, countries and their opinions and their ideologies is directly contributing to um, genetic data and um, genetic research. And, you know, there's uh, uh, certain countries that they don't care about the rights and freedoms of their people. So they'll just that, uh, that do care about the rights and freedoms and are wondering, well, how far behind are we going to get if we just allow these regimes that don't care about the rights and freedoms of their population to take all of the genetic data to work with that, how are we going to um, keep up scientifically when they have so many um, data banks um, and freely accessible, whereas people in um, countries with uh, rights and freedoms seem to want to protect their genetic data. So this is just a situation that's going on today and it would be good for people to um, do some research and instead of being attached to their ideologies, look at the reality of the situation and what's going on and uh, the cause and effect relationship with that. And I'm done talking. I recommend quickly the proof by Andres Bauer, The Countable Reels. I think it helps grasp knowledge in situations where 
of inf information overload. Kenny, I sent it to you. It's in the chat. Dr. Ren, I'll send it to you as well. But I'm at the soccer field, so I have to uh, just listen now. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you guys so much. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, when some uh, you, are, you are saying that uh, the slave and the slavery, <laughs> I, I, I want to tell you my feeling, okay? As a scientist, we always feel we are slaves. You know, we work so hard, we get technology, get science worked out, get technology ready for the society. Uh, and then the government brought uh, different branches and then they could do whatever the bad things to us. Uh, so that scares us. Uh, just like the snails, you know, the snails, they, they, they go to the land, they prepare, they grow the food, they cook the food, take to the table, and then they don't have a right to eat the food. And then the, the landlord, uh, they eat it first. And if they don't any have anything left, they, if they are nice, they give it to the, the snake. And if they are not nice, the snake has to be hungry. So I fear that we as scientists, just the same like this, the snakes. And the politicians are so bad, uh, and they just mess things around doing the bad things and then do everything for their own benefit not really think about uh, the people and the country and the world which is very sad that's what's going on i just i want to add one point like all over the world like the scientists are taken for granted and just seen as a pushover I mean, really, like uh, the voice is not heard anywhere in decision making or even the, I mean, I don't know. We all talk about taxpayers' money and even taxpayers don't really care where the research is being funded or what is the priority of funding. So it's like, it's pathetic. And I, I really appreciate when you come up, I mean, you are such an acclaimed researcher and you come up with this uh, reality and I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, Dr. Ren, we should uh, go grab lunch together sometime, man. Sure. Down the street from yeah. you here in Houston. Yeah. So, so I can tell you, I can tell you one fact is uh, about let's say about six, seven years ago, when we wrote proposals, our proposal success rate uh, it's at least fifty percent. We do because we do very good uh, science. Uh, up to this moment, my group has published with my name published like six hundred papers, and I have more than uh, probably about 100 of those papers out of 600 are highly cited in the world. So-called highly cited is top 1%. And in the past, I didn't have any problem to get the funding. And it, but during the last uh, six, seven years, I have basically zero funding. And whatever I write, and they just shut it down. I don't know what's going on. Is Is it? It's not because my productivity is going down. In fact, my productivity is going way up than six years ago. And my impact of research is also going way up. I just don't understand what those people are doing. And then they are giving money to people who are not producing. And then they're strangling, they're strangling people who are producing. Uh, this, is, this is not the right way the country should go. Very frustrating. 
It's because the science, the science is focused on the science, and then getting the money is like sales, right? It's become a sales job, and then it's also become who's connected. So, being involved in COVID and kind of, you know, people were trying to throw money at me in different ways, you know. Like I discovered, you know, as an example with the CDC, right? You know, Center for Disease Control. You have a great breakthrough thing that's gonna kick butt and be fantastic and amazing, and it's like right in your face, obvious. And you come up and you like, let's say, solve some incredible freaking problem, right? And it's like right there in your face. Are they gonna take it? No. You got to go through one of their. Now the strategy is you have to go through, and I learned all this. I mean, strategic. Basically, you have to do a lot of strategic stuff to get the money, which is silly. Right. But in essence, you got to go through CDC, like CDC is going to give money to certain groups, big companies or big orgs. And then you got to go through them and big orgs and big names or whatever will take your stuff. And then, of course, take the credit for it. Right. Um, and then go to uh, the CDC. And then now you create this like loop where the big org continues to get the credit, even though you know, somebody else is doing it and you've, it's, it's a, it's a middleman, right? Yeah. It's, it, there's a, there's, yeah. there's middleman and another middleman and another middleman. Like by the time you get your, you know, it's like, oh, you want funding? Yeah. Well, the, you know, like what a percentage of it's going to go towards your funding, but another chunk of it's going to go towards fees of navigating and who's got to get paid along the pipeline to, for the money to actually end up in the funding. It's, it's, it's really sad that, that, the, sci the scientists and engineers and innovators, the actual ones working on the stuff, they don't, they don't get direct, like direct access is not, it's hard. It's really, really hard. Usually you have to go through some third party that's going to take all the credit, you know? Yeah. It's ridiculous, man. Like there needs to be some type of supply chain that we can establish between, you know, the science and uh, research and development sides, you know, because I think that, you know, there's probably ways. It's just that we're so conventional in the method of approach that we haven't really thought about finding that aspect. And I think that you guys are, you know, probably thinking about it and trying to figure out a way of doing it. But I think that that would just be amazing if we can create, you know, just a better supply chain for people like us, you know, because it's really frustrating, especially when, you know, a lot of people have, you know, answers to, to really important questions. If you think about how much money the government has wasted in last two or three years, and every time six trillion, yeah, just to be they, they printed six trillion dollars. Every time dude. they put trillions of trillions of dollars to places, which I think is just wasted. Uh, instead of you know putting into those money into the waste, why not just give to the people who are productive people who can really do something? Uh, it's just uh, frustration. It's not the right word can can say, you know, the current situation. Uh, it, it's just not only uh, I used to the at the time when I was trying to come to this country. I fear America, you know, is the most democratic society. People don't nice. People work hard. And it, uh, you, 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 if you work hard, you get whatever you you contributed to the society. But now everything's gone. People lies from the topmost and lying to the to the bottom 
and then you know doing bad things and then really if you are trying to do good things and then the people figure that you are idiot this is how how serious this is this world this country is frustrating it is man and you know just thinking about even applications of of what you know people like you and, and i are trying to develop you know they always say it's going to take 10 years i think it takes you know 10 years of application because we have to inform those people in between which takes the most time you know and it's just it's ridiculous it's like we're we're able to to do the work but now we have to explain the work that we did two people in between for them to carry it to the top, which takes five, then takes another five years. So it's like everything is is delayed from, you know, the actual experience, you know, it's like you're you're affecting reality by adding extra layers of manifestation. And you're wondering why there's free. You know, a lot of a lot of hardworking companies or scientists, they need funding to do the right work. You don't get it. But on the other hand, government has been wasting time, wasting money to a lot of sense. One ridiculous thing I hear that is during, well, I think it's like two years ago, I heard on the NPR radio uh, saying that one guy got $1 billion, spent $1 billion, government, federal government money, taxpayers' money, built a half a mile wall in the middle of a river between Texas and Mexico. Give me a break. That's so ridiculous. And then that half mile wall probably is gone already. <laughs> That's $1 billion of taxpayer money. Man, oh my God. Yeah, yeah unfortunately, that's, that's what we live in. And then like, yeah, so it's like, so a new system needs to be there. Like, uh, you know, one where it draws scientists and engineers into and I mean, I think there's a way to do it, right? I mean, it's using DAOs and creating a collective and having groups work on projects and then create licensable technology that goes out. When the money comes in, you know, the group that originated gets 20% and then 80% is re-split among the groups. So if you had a group of 10, you know, 20% would go to the original group. It gets re-split, so they get another 8% and then everybody gets 8%. Well, then one of the other group goes out and then they get a win, you know, then they get 20% of the, the, the license that comes in and then it goes to the, you know, uh, others. But now, now technically they got two contracts really, right? I mean, they got, they had 8%. Now they're at like 28% plus eight. And then another person pops, another person pops, they get another eight, eight, eight. So you, you end up in a situation where instead of winner take all, like the startup culture, like the startup uh, system right now is interesting in the sense that you have, let's say 10 uh, companies, right? Like that are invested in a portfolio. Well, one or two might be super uh, stars in terms of like monetary success, okay? But the others failed. And most of the time, the number one reason why um, companies win or fail is because of timing, actually. It's not because of the team and how smart or not smart they are, it's, it's timing, right? So you have this portfolio of like amazing, you know, engineers and startup entrepreneurs and whatnot. 
and the superstars make it and then everybody else has to collapse and they've been working for like you know three two three years and sacrificed everything and then now they're all going to go through depression right i mean this is how it <laughs> i'm just telling you how it is right it's just like you're, you're hard it's just like all of a sudden it's done versus and it's especially if you're punished right like how shitty is it like and this happens more frequent than not where that timing factor you're too early because you were too smart for your own good and you created stuff and you created a platform and it was just too early for everybody to understand right and then you shelf you have to stop it and then like two like three four five years later somebody else comes out with something that's pretty much the same thing but it was just the right timing right um that happens a lot right so instead of like letting all those people disappear just say okay shelf that stuff it didn't work out take that, those brains and people and then put them into the other startups that are actually winning and as far as money's concerned right or they can continue their work if that money came into that initial startup and instead of a winner take all went and got distributed among the others right it's actually a very simple uh, model that i kind of created you know that i want to execute on but it's just i've talked to tons of people about it and it, it, everybody likes like the, the scientists like it engineers like it it's like you know you get to collaborate together and and instead of things falling the the the, the teams falling apart and disappearing they can just fold in within the the group and system to the other uh teams to join in you know and then now those teams get like hardworking, great people that just you know the problem they were working on is just not ready yet you know uh, for 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 the public to consume, um, I think it's doable. Yeah, so we have talked about so much negative sense. Maybe if we want to continue, we should talk about some positive sense. <laughs> well, there's a but there's there's I, I'd like to just interject one thing. I've been listening to this for and it's beautiful discussion, but there's a model that's already in place. Um, this does not need to be reinvented. If you look at um, look at you only have to look at history to see, okay, where what you just described existed uh, in many, many different small investment banking firms. Um, and you viewed all of the collective as like kind of individual, they could be individual scientists, inventor, whatever, but it was a portfolio of individuals that were very talented and like Lehman Brothers lasted 147 years. Bear Stearns lasted 95 years. And I, you know, I could go down the list at Oppenheimer, a firm that I worked at lasted is still around after 152 years. And what it is, is it's collective prosperity. Um, everybody is accountable for their for their um it could be their invention or their business um and 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 everyone is either rewarded or penalized based on the collective group this is a proven model um financial services has leveraged that model and created that model it could absolutely be replicated in the scientific community. I uh, dropped the mic. Oh, dude, that's great. I mean, I'm so glad you came up here to talk about that, you know I mean? Because I mean, I'm on the entrepreneurial side and you know, I mean, I've scaled up 
you know, a company, or actually we created the Lash Extension Industries example, scaled it into a franchise system in more than 50 countries, right? And then, like, did a whole bunch of that. Like, I've done a lot of entrepreneurial stuff, and but in my last project with the OxyKit, it was like a global uh, collaboration project to create oxygen access around the world, like, just have it spawn up the education. And in the process, that's when I saw just how bad it is inside of the scientific community and the corporate communities right like here we are we're trying to solve a problem in the uh oxygen access space right and then uh, talking to engineers and I'm, I'm talking about like the current principal software architect at tests uh, those at microsoft's now is at at uh, spacex right the fellows at intel the chief r d guys and the chief of residency like the, the, like tons of top people over at kaiser <laughs> involved right um Google's and Apple's and Teladocs and like we got this little behind the scenes pillow tribe thing of just incredible minds and the same issue kept popping up right the the scientists and engineers I talked to when they're giving me information or we were talking together we're very we had to do this stuff a lot of times behind the scenes and a lot of us got amnesia right um but what's uh, the underlying stuff that was really jamming everything was the uh is the R&D contracts that every other interesting, very interesting thing that I thought was that these top guys at like, I mean, you're talking about the top, you know, the, the chief architects at these different companies, they're going through the open source channel to create stuff because they're afraid if they go create some tech, even and they want to give it away and they want to help people. And then, yeah, maybe it'll, maybe if it commercializes, they'll actually jump in and actually do that full time. But the route of them doing it directly won't work. If they go through the open source model, right, they can um, basically the stuff is open source. Anybody's in, everybody's pitching in. It's like liability disappears in an interesting way, right? Because like everybody's chunking in stuff, right? And that's that was very very interesting. But all of them are like they're taking alternative routes because they're they're afraid that whatever they're doing at home in their garages can be taken by the big company, right? Um, they're afraid of talking about anything because they're gonna get in trouble under R&D contracts and their career would be over, right? If they could just get the, the, the model of just, okay, get these people together. And, and they by the way, a lot of these folks told me, man, if you pull this off, this will be Nirvana, right? Where they could all just come in, be autonomous groups, work on problems, create licensable technology that's then you know basically you know create prototypes and solve problems and then give it out to uh you know uh the next stage which is like maybe you know have entrepreneurs on deck to go find you know the the the, the create the product pitch if you will get demand and maybe put up a website get some sales rolling like the revenue and uh prove the revenue model because that's what entrepreneurs are supposed to do anyway right like we're supposed to prove the revenue model find it and then go give it to uh, you know, sell, sell it to the companies to scale. If we could accelerate that process from research to prototype to uh, proving market demand, like in this in this science society, by the way, Gordon, if you go back, there's all these great geniuses and scientists. One guy yesterday was like, you know, created all, did all this tech around sleep tech. Everybody's got to sleep, right? And how, you know, you can decrease blood pressure and, by simply, if you warm up your hands and uh, your neck is even warmer, 39 degrees Celsius on your like neck and 32 at your hands and 27 at your body, you're now going to get optimal sleep. 
you know? And so he's done all this research about it, but there's that gap of like, Hey, take this. I'm like, all right, well, let's just create a prototype and put a YouTube video up there and make some units, 3d print some stuff, basic stuff and just sell them. They just prove demand right there. Like people are buying it. It gets going. Then you get the attention of uh, bigger players that way, instead of just like, here's a bunch of like, there's a disconnect. There's the, the, the paper and the research and the science. You need an entrepreneur to kind of come in and uh, a technology style entrepreneur to take that and translate that to the real world and just create a pitch and, and, and sell it. And then if we could do this, we could actually accelerate so fast product into market because if you can create the product autonomously, create a process to take that. And this is, this is actually the biggest missing piece in the work I've done. I'm telling you, there's hundreds of amazing products ready to freaking hit the market. They're just built by people that don't understand, you know, they're not, they're not entrepreneurs. They're not business people. They're scientists and engineers. Um, and they're either jamming up against that because they don't know what to do next. And then there's also the uh, regulatory uh, piece. That's a, that's a huge roadblock for, for, for so Myra, many. the, the thing you described, I think initially was something corporate America uh, loves to call open innovation, uh, which I find is more of a marketing gimmick. Um, it's not really something that are actually all about, so to speak. It's just something they put out there on their websites and, you know, it's, it looks nice, but uh, it's not something they're going to uh, probably want to follow up with once something significant is uh, discovered or invented or et cetera. Um, but there is, you know, there's institutes, there's uh, SRI infamously, you know, they, they do exactly what you just described. I think the main issue is a lot of this technology uh, goes under the radar. Um, you have entrepreneurs that have this, uh, how should I put it, um, interest. They have a problem they're looking to solve. They have whatever they have. But at the end of the day, they don't know there's a technology out there that's been invented by a scientist that's collecting dust that solves the problem they're trying to solve. So if you have a situation like that, um, it's always going to be a gap between the scientists and the entrepreneurs. Um, I think there should be some type of, you know, uh, website or, or some type of platform that connects all these technologies that are sitting collecting dust which are you know are, are, are technologies they're owned by us in america at least uh, there are taxpayer funded technologies uh, in many institutes um and they're patented and the patents are going to run out obviously in 18 years give or take so uh they're really just you know going to waste so i think there needs to be a platform somebody should create a platform i think it'd be uh ingenious to create a platform that showcases technologies that have been discovered invented what they can do potentially what could they can solve wh what kind of problems you know uh could be uh, uh solved by them and then you have entrepreneurs that you know understand the problems because scientists uh the issue with with scientists uh and engineers is uh, uh they don't understand the, the real world you know simplistic problems that people face many times and they don't they're not they don't have the inventor's mind uh on a rudimentary level not on a scientific level more of a basic level that an entrepreneur would have so there's a disconnect there and if you can provide a platform to connect these two uh you know groups i think you could find something very successful so maybe somebody should get on that <laughs> sooner than later but i did want to ask dr ren uh dr ren i i i feel like I've, I've seen some of your work before um have you done anything in the uh uh Electrostatic electrode space. Electrostatic electrode space. Uh, can you be a little bit more specific? Well, I think you've done some stuff with electrodes, right? Yes, it's a flexible, uh, it's flexible a... and transparent. I've seen that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, yeah yes, yes. Uh, flexible, transparent yeah, electrode. I've right. seen that. 
for a, have you done any have you done anything with electrostatics and electrodes uh, not really no what we are we have been doing those were uh, earlier work uh, transparent electrodes for flexible electronics uh, wearable uh, foldable uh, those those things and then recent years on the uh, extended to that is we have been doing catalysts for water splitting uh, to basically convert uh, additional or uh, oversupplied power into hydrogen to store energy that kind of thing okay but nothing with utilizing the ions electrons to turn them into or, or utilizing them in general at all no not really okay I'd be, I'd be giving hey, you a call Denny, if I you did. <laughs> We'd have to talk if you did, but anyway. Denny, I, I love what you're talking about. You know, this is a thought that me and a couple of my friends were talking about too, is just creating some type of database with um, supply chain data as well to where we can, you know, basically go over everything that's going to have to be changed over by 2030 and just take it supply chain from to supply chain, you know, and figure out how we can introduce alternative, you know, technologies and materials to these supply chains. I think that that would be a great starting point. Well, Kenny, the issue is also that a lot of entrepreneurs don't understand a fucking word in a scientific journal. <laughs> so they're very big words in there. That's the best way I can put it to you. So a lot of times they'll describe what's happening and what they're doing and what they're solving, the scientists, and the entrepreneurs just don't understand what's being said in, in that in that paper. They just don't understand it at all. I mean, if they if they could break down what's been done in a layman's term and put it on a platform where uh, somebody can type it in like Google, you know, like a typical entrepreneur, like Mar, for example, who's, who's you know, an entrepreneur that could be solving a problem. He could have seen something and he's like, oh, man, if I could just do this, I, I could I could make this product and he could have a platform to research that. And I think I think the disconnect in the uh, you know, in, on the on the kind of, you know, uh, intellectual level on a book level, you know, because scientists are very smart, book smart, uh, but, you know, entrepreneurs are very street smart. Uh, I think that disconnect also is a major issue because a lot of times uh, when you read these papers, you just half the time you don't understand what's being said in there until you really dive in and, and to spend time, which a lot of people don't have. Uh, these days, you know, corporate America, if you send an email for that's more than a couple sentences, good luck having anybody read it. So the bottom line is, I think there needs to be some layman's description of what's happened, of what just was accomplished by these, you know, very, you know, smart genius scientists to a layman entrepreneur who could, you know, be looking to solve a problem that this technology is a perfect fit, but he just doesn't know that it is because he can't understand what just was done. So that's a whole other thing. And I think there needs to be some connection there. And if it does happen, I mean, there's so much technology that's collecting dust that our government, you know, institutes and our government and universities have, have invented that uh, it's just phenomenal technologies out there. You'd be, I mean, people would be shocked. I think that you can use maybe a translator, you know, so think about if it's an app, you know, just think about how Uber is, you know, there's, there's different services that you can provide in that app to where if there's somebody that, you know, just published a science paper, you can have a translator, you know, bid on that basically and work out a, you know, layman's term explanation for the entrepreneur. You know, that's really what we've all been thinking about is just trying to figure out how we can create a step-by-step -step process. But I think that it's definitely doable with data scientists. You know, if we put the right team together, I think that we can probably pull it off. Well, there needs to be a platform. It's, it's, it's actually... Uh, 
dude, I've been studying this at not at not, like every most of the people on stage will we've talked about it, like whether it's Eli, Katarina, Joyce, probably I'm sure she's been there, Kyle, like we've been like Peter, uh, hundreds of people, right? About this, I could you know what I've discovered in my user elicitation of the engineers and of the scientists and of course of the entrepreneurs because I'm in EO and surrounded by you know thousands of them everywhere. Um, everybody wants a place to live. That's what's interesting. Like they want to be together. Like that's what people really want. They want like it's nature place that they could live together, have a maker space, have a lab and have the the, the, the teams working on, you know, cause they don't, they, they also don't want to say solve the same damn thing, right? Scientists and engineers want to work on different problems. They also want like, you know, they're working on something. They want to go jump over and look at another team's thing. Like, oh, that's cool. And then put their input in there. Cause they like to solve problems and they want to solve problems. And once the problem is solved, they want to go to the next problem. The entrepreneurs, same way, right? Once you, you know, I mean, an entrepreneur's dream that doesn't exist yet, which I plan on trying to make happen, is the ability to have exactly what you said, which is like, but an actual space and admins and everybody underneath in a, in a, in a support structure of administration, uh, you know, to, 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 to support these two primary characters, which is the scientist engineer, as well as the entrepreneur, right? To just go in there and be like, yeah, let me just pick this product up and take it to market, right? Or is this being developed, right? Be involved with the scientist and engineer at the beginning stages so that the scientists and engineers are building things that the world actually values, right? And wants. So, and then along that process, uh, because if you put a scientist and uh, an entrepreneur with inside of a lab with an engineer and then they show them what they do, oh, here's the thing. What does it do? And, and entrepreneurs are usually pretty good at asking questions, right? Like, you know, yesterday we had a, a guy up here with, um, um, which he had like the, the, the sleep tech that I was talking about. Right. And it was all, you know, it's like, uh, he's like trying to go through the mattress companies. It's like, oh, go through, you know, then the mattress companies are already making money and they're printing. And I was like, yeah, but this is also complicated to go through the mattress. You don't need to. At the end of the day, what you're trying to do is you just need to warm up. You're, you're trying, you need to warm up the hands, warm up the feet, warm up the naked a little bit more, and then put the body a little cooler. You could probably do that with some type of a blanket right that you put on top or some type of a way something you wear um that you don't have to do with a big old huge mattress and a mattress you're going to move around anyway how are you going to control where the hands are right so the practical stuff like i see that kind of practical like okay they're going to be flopping around on the bed you can't really do that you know that's too sophisticated on the bed to be trying to catch exactly where the hands are on the bed and change that setting to be warmer than whatever so every time you're moving around that's like some that's way too complicated right you could do that with some type of a Anyway, so we started brainstorming around that kind of stuff, right? But that's, I mean, that's what we got in, like, everybody in Clubhouse wants to, like, all the brains in here in Clubhouse would like that, you know? And the the, the thing, though, is most people when I talk to about this, um, especially on the entrepreneur and, and, and investment side, what do they want? They want to control it. Like, this is brilliant, great, let's control it and, you know, monetize off it. No, and it's like, the trick is how do you create a system where, you know, it kickstarts and gets going and then you only have maybe a handful of, of uh, um, scientists and a, handful, and, and, and a couple entrepreneurs or something working together. And then as they produce uh, licensable tech that creates the revenue, then they grow. Then that system grows. Because the, and then that money Omar, stays within. I, yeah, yeah. But, but I, don't, I don't think entrepreneurs are the issue at all. I mean, entrepreneurs yeah. are not the issue. I think it's uh, the, the conversation you guys were having earlier was very interesting. 
regarding the large organizations, whether they're corporate or government organizations, basically, you know, uh, the secrecy and, and stifling the technology. Um, anybody who's dealt with corporate America will tell you there's a reason why they've never truly fundamentally innovated. They do incremental innovation at best. Uh, there's no large company that's ever, that's not founder-led. There's no large founder-led company that's ever truly innovated. I, I, I'd love to see an example if anybody has one, but it's always <laughs> And the re, yeah, I'd, I'd love they to be proven it. wrong. They just buy it. They buy it. Oh, they I, I would it. love to be proven wrong. I've, I've been looking for this for many years. But the, the, the thing is, they do incremental innovation because once the founder leaves, I mean, Jobs broke it down best, you have a situation where you have a bunch of MBAs. These guys are taught to yep. you know, cut costs. That's it. I deal with these guys, whether you name a company, I've dealt with them. And these guys, they don't like innovation. Innovation changes things. Innovation creates uncertainty. Innovation creates a, a situation where they're bringing something in that could potentially be great, but it could potentially be bad too. So until it's fully proven, especially in this day and age with all the risk involved in, in, in the world right now, they're they're very risk averse. So I would I would say corporate America um, is the last place to take anything innovative to, um, and the last people you want to deal with is an MBA who works at a you know Google or Apple who's making half a million a year uh, salary alone and, and et cetera. He's not going to risk that for anything. There's nothing he's going to risk that for. That's remotely risky uh, if it's not fully proven and, and you know even in the market really. So See, this, then, this it's really this, a this, corporate this. America issue. It's not an entrepreneur issue at all. Entrepreneurs are looking for the opportunity. We're dying for the opportunity. We'll risk everything for the opportunity. But the MBAs, the guys that, that, that have never done anything, uh, you know, outside of, you know, getting a paycheck, um, they are the ones that stop innovation without a doubt. I deal with them on a regular basis. They don't care for innovation. They care about their job. That's the only thing they care about. And, and you're right. And that's what I'm saying. That's the problem, right? So, okay. Right. I'm glad you, you you clarified that. Okay, so what I meant to say, right, just to be clear, okay, you got product, you know, you got the product development pipeline, right? So you got research, then you know, and then you got prototyping, and then everybody gets stuck at pro. Like, what happens is they create a little prototype, or or in science, a lot of times they even don't they don't necessarily do the prototype. They do the research, and they're in the lab, right? And then now you did all this work, you just need to do a prototype, and then if you got a prototype, it's like ah, eh, right. The missing piece is to take that prototype and rapidly, right, very quickly, and then have a systematic approach, right? If you sit there and you like, like have a systematic team is like, create the stuff. All right, cool. Let's create the prototype. All right, now let's go do the same freaking thing, especially now I'm a digital marketer, right? Create a prototype, create a YouTube video, put up an e-commerce website, uh, have, you know, just chunk that in. And you, you, have, you, you have a team of customer service reps that are going to sell the thing, you know, market, sell the thing. You got a pitch, a pitching entrepreneur is going to pitch it around. Um, and you just, you just need to show revenue. Like once you show the revenue and the market size, okay, like, look, look here's a bunch of customers. They bought it and it's growing. Yeah, they'll pay a hundred times more for it. Once exactly. you do that. They'll pay a million exactly. times more. You know why? But why? Because their it's job proven. is not on the line. They, they know that the they not, there's no risk. There's no risk. Exactly. Exactly. That's really exactly. all it is. That's how it is. Exactly. The NBA Yeah, it's all about so it's all about these little dictators that, that run these little departments. Thanks. And their jobs yeah, their jobs say innovation and they're supposed to be taking risks, but they will not take a risk. It doesn't matter who they are, where they are. I don't care if it's Google. I promise you they will not take a risk. But they Never. but look what they do. They they buy companies that are have proven the revenue model right so you don't have to go and go 10 years you just build the thing 
get some revenue coming in. Any freaking revenue. If you got revenue and if you package it properly, like here's the revenue and you show the metrics, you know what you're talking about. You know how to talk to these MBAs. Be like, all right, cool. Look, we already did the model. Here it is over here. This is a, a service-based product, right? So it's local-based and whatever. So we put it through our local our local uh, go-to-market engine, right? Process where you got people going that are just going to take the products that are coming out, the services, and push them out there through this process, which is all the same shit, right? It's like you got a service, you got a product, you got a part, whatever, right? You got different uh, categories you target. And then once you put it through there, you can easily, like within a couple of months, two, three months, right, show here's the revenue, here's the referrals. Uh, if it's a recurring revenue product, that's the magic, right? Like here's the recurring revenue, here's, here's how sticky this is. Uh, and it's growing, and this is this market. And by the way, if you extrapolate that out to the world, it's that kind of market, and it looks like that. You create an auction between different um, uh, companies to come in and bid and pick up that. Literally, not just tech, right? It's a little step further. It's proven tech. It's it's tech. It's intra, It's it's revenue proven. Like there is demand because look here. Like even if a hundred people or two hundred people or two hundred fifty people or depending on how, even if it's a, if it's a small twenty dollar thing, like a thousand people bought the thing, right? You know, and and you show you know growth there, they're gonna buy that, right? Because they're like, okay, people bought that. That's proven revenue, and it's like, hey, it's revenue. Now you do your job. You're, you're a channel. You know, you're a big ass yeah, company, it, it matters, and you here's a product pump it through your channel, right? So but you, before. Yeah, go ahead, sir. I thought yeah, you were so it's just, it's just, it's, yeah, I'll just finish by saying that little small step of you don't have to build the whole fucking company, dude. Just build the revenue model to prove it and then have the big company buy that and they'll buy it at like crazy X multiple because it's a strategic buy if you're smart. You tell you're like, hey, this is a strategic buy. Here's how big your channel is. You can make this money uh, here. Take this license. Give us a royalty. And we don't want to fuck with it anymore because we want to go solve the next problem. Right. As, and as entrepreneurs, it's like, here you go. We package it up. You do the the deal. Right. And then you go pick up and then now instead of going into depression after you sell your, your, your company, because that's what entrepreneurs do, they their whole family and everybody, their whole family is the company. They sell their company. They got this money in the bank. And guess what? They go into depression. Right. Because they just lost life, really. OK. Now they could come back in and have a whole slew of new products to jump in to take to market or whatnot. Right. So that's that's the, the model I'm talking about. Don't build the out the company but before all the that Mark, sell it. But before all that, what you guys were talking about. Dr. Ren and whoever else is in this room listening, if you could, if somebody could just create a simple Google uh, that translates these research papers and this, this, this innovation that happens constantly in the scientific community for a layman entrepreneur to be able to go in there and he's trying to solve this stupid problem that he, that could be a massive product for, 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 you never know. And he could just look for this, you know, type in what he's looking to solve or maybe just research the keywords the way you can research a patent, you know, a USP to a website, you could do keywords. And obviously it's a little bit of work involved, but if you can create something like that, I think uh, that would be phenomenal because entrepreneurs are always willing to license, especially at the early stage. They're more than happy to license because they, they, they don't have the capability to create this innovation. They, they, don't, they don't have the, the skill set, et cetera. So they're more than happy to license it. Um, and I think if somebody could create that platform, man, that, that'll, that'll innovate, that'll boost innovation like nobody's business. Because it's just an audio version, right? So uh, people told me I should have transcripts of the thing and kind of edit it at some point, but that's exactly what we're doing. And if you go on our website, there's a huge amount of, you know, um, current cutting edge research uh, explained in a way that 
everyone should be able to understand it. So that's exactly what we are doing, just in an audio form, but we can easily transform it into a written. Make it like Google, Katerina. Just copy Google. That's it. Just let me Google a stupid problem and show me show me the smart solution. So, so Danny, here's here's the issue. Here's the issue. Here's let me tell you guys the issue that we faced. Okay, because this is this is something that Katerina and Eli and Kyle like did. You know, you're new to this to our like you know class talk. It's fun. You're breaking but up for me, Mar. The problem you're is you're in the matrix. Oh, okay. Am I back now? Yep. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Okay. The problem is that it's the the problem I'm trying to solve is figure out how to spin these up on ultra low cost money where you don't need investors because investors want to come in and you know I mean like you know at, at the end of the day VC funds and an entrepreneur it's all about economics and control those are the two things that matter economics and control right. So investors want to get cash out and 10x and all that other stuff. That doesn't, that's not what's needed. What's needed is for a self, a sustainable system of innovation that pumps out money that comes back in that's sustainable in which the entrepreneurs get paid and the team members get paid in this kind of collective format. And it's not a. But that's not free market, man. That's, that doesn't match our no, system in America, at least. No, it. it well, it, what it's, about. It's, it's, Hold on, hold on. Why can't, you didn't hear the you didn't, you didn't hear the model. It earlier, would right? need to be a non-for-profit, and then it would match the. System. Yeah, if it's not for it's profit, profit, no, hold on. Yeah, it could do that. No, no, if it's it, no, 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 no. This would be clear. Mars said, no, 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 none of that, none of that. Let me be one hundred percent clear, okay? The engineers and scientists need to get paid, okay? They need to not be slaves anymore, okay? That's that's what it comes down. Well, to. Well, they right? would get paid so in a not-for-profit, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Look into the non-for-profit. They do get paid. You can still pay people in a non-for-profit. I would look at the actual structure of this because capitalists in your own country have utilized this system very well. Um, and it, it might very well work for, for what it is you're talking about. It's really like an employee. Think of an employee-owned structure. That's what we're talking about here. Okay, It's really creating an employee-owned structure. Yes, just you know? like just like that's what the old investment banks were. They were employee owned, and um, and they and every every employee had a stake in the business, um, and that could be every inventor, you know, every and and the reality is is that what you're what you're talking about actually there's a place in Atlanta that's about as close as you're going to find to what you're describing. Um, there's uh, a, a lady by the name of Robin Bienfade, who was uh, a technologist at both BlackBerry and at uh, Samsung and her sister. And they created a space, an actual space here in Atlanta that, um, and there are inventors in the space. Absolutely, they're inventors in the space, and th there's a lot of collaboration going on. And um, what they're looking to do is 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 you know create commercial commercial products, commercial technologies. It's actually very cool. And what the ladies do, because they're very savvy business people, is 
they and they've created a small team um, of of different people that can come in and really look at something and say, well, let's. I think we have a much better chance going to market this way. And most, almost all the businesses are bootstrapped. Bootstrapped. Um, they do have to. They they are looking to to create that revenue themselves. And and rather than take on investors and or maybe get in bed with people who who could stab them in the neck later, um, more like what you said, Merritt. Like like I think the model's beautiful that you're thinking about. It's you take a group of technologists and a group of great marketers and 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 people who really are have connectivity in the world to. To, to bring unique products to the market. And yeah, so you can create it, license it out, go back and create rather than like going through that vicious cycle of having to raise money, having to take on investors, having to deal with all that complexity. No, just license it, get it out, and let's go back and invent more. I think exactly. it's a very realistic and beautiful model. I, I think someone's really... But but Gordon, should try it. I think it Gordon, works. Yeah, and it kicks and off. You're familiar it, it, with you guys are. But it kicks Mark, off. You guys are familiar with kicks, Stanford oh, go ahead, Research right. Institute, right? But you guys yes. are familiar with Stanford Research. Institute, no doubt. Right? They, that's what. That's yeah. They spun out. You know, Siri. That's where Siri. Yes. SRI, yes. Siri, that's where the computer mouse. If you're familiar with the computer mouse, the internet. Uh, these guys have been involved in everything, and it's kind of like what you described. And they are government entity, technically speaking. So. Um, but they do spin out the tech, um, and they do do this. But at the end of the day, uh, I am very familiar with them, and and it does seem that corporate America um, is 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 kind of a shrouded in secrecy these days compared to before. So it's gotten a lot harder to do with what what they do, and 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 try and this this model in general because of the way corporate America has has gone lately. And and with this model, what's nice about it? The reason I like this and being disciplined and sticking to a license, like. It's a pseudo, it's like, it's like a, it's like, let's take the tech and push it to market to prove the revenue. Like you could, you could prove revenue really freaking simple these days. You just throw up a website and put a demo thing and create a prototype and 3D print, even though it might be expensive. I mean, even if it was expensive to make the first units, who ca even if you fucking lost money, right? Like th seriously, right? Even if you lost money, it doesn't matter because everybody knows if you produce units at scale is going to be, be lower cost if you're just focused on proving the demand and that people are going to buy it and that there's going to be especially if there's a nice recurring piece in there that's super juicy right right if you can prove that at a small scale but show that it's a massive market people will buy that all day long, dude. Well, if they you just... can do that, Mario, you don't need to do anything after that. <laughs> <laughs> you got money showing up at your front door when you do that. Yeah, that's, that's the whole point. <laughs> Things get a lot That's the whole point of the model, right? You got predictive revenue now coming in, right? You got predictive revenue. There's probably like a big ass check to come up front with the with the deal, right? It's like, hey, you know, hey, this is great tech. You know, we proved the revenue model. Here's like, you know, uh, five million at close for this, right? And like, you know, whatever, five to ten, you know, anywhere between, you know, a few percentage to 10% to 12%, 15% maybe of the tech as a royalty, depending on the specific technology, right? And then you now have your discipline and you're like, all right, we got this big ass money. What do we do with it? We don't just go buy yachts and stupid shit. No, it goes back into the collective, right? 20% goes to the team that originated that revenue piece okay 
So now they could go buy their yachts if they want to, right? Um, or whatever they they just do whatever the hell they want. It's good. But what, what are scientists and engineers going to do when you and, and what are scientists and engineers going to do when you give them money? They're going to go buy lab equipment and they're going to go innovate even more. Right. And they're going to like that, right? What are entrepreneurs going to do when you give them money, right? They're going to go and go try to find the next thing to sell, right? Just because it's fun, you know. And that's what we want to do. And we get and and this space of people are super smart and get bored, right? Most people want to have a um, consistent thing, right? Like they go into work and they got a consistent check and they do the consistent thing. They don't want to learn new shit. They just want to do the same thing. So they go home and watch their Netflix and, and do their, their, their ball games and um, whatever, right? Okay. Um, not the group of people I hang around with, right? And, and that aren't here and the scientists and engineers. Opposite, they want, as soon as they solve a problem, they don't want to do it no more. Dude, I built companies straight up. Like I built technology and went off and like turned it on and did $90,000 a month one and then turned it off because I got, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to have to go grow this into a franchise system again or a big ass global system. No, I was already a CEO of a company doing, uh, you know, franchises in 50 countries. I'd never want to do that. Welcome again, okay. I was very successful. <laughs> you know? Never, ever want to do that shit again. Right. You know, that's boring as hell, man. That's just people management and HR management and litigation management for like a lot of your stuff. And then you're managing cash flow and it's just, it's just the MBA shit. It's like, you know, give that to the fucking boring as MBAs. Right. Okay. You know, so there's, but they, they want to solve different problems and entrepreneurs want to take something to market. And as soon as they take it to market and prove it, sell it right away to have have like some M&A attorneys and like a pipeline for them to actually go take that tech, prove it, and then go right away, sell it and exit. They would do that over and over. That 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 would be great if you had the support structure to do that, right? So that doesn't exist right now. And so I've been um, basically building a massive collective, you know, and in essence, I kind of went through this process. I did the open source thing. I created this oxygen concentrator, which the whole darn world started building. And I got a award from President Biden for doing this, right? And congressional award from Vegas and Tata Consulting Engineers, the biggest company in India, took this and, and validated it. And then like 50 companies just spawned up overnight making oxygen concentrators, right? I did this process through a free route to save human lives. But in so doing, I saw how powerful this process is, attaching uh, some lawyers and licensing agreements and just solve the problem, scale it, let, give it out, and then go, go solve the next one. And you could create, you just, once you have a hit, then you grow, then you bring on more engineers in the team, more entrepreneurs. And there's, why should you bring them on? Well, because they might have a big hit and they're gonna share the revenue. We don't know who's gonna be at the hit. Nobody knows who's gonna be the hit in there. But if we're all working on something and some of them, something's going to hit big and we go help that team hit. And if we don't hit, well, we could go jump on one of the other teams, right? You know, it's, it's, uh, it's forming a collective of the scientists and entrepreneurs together and then growing in a disciplinary fashion based on the revenue that comes in. I love it, man. I kind of have like, after what you were talking about with, um, the technology for the sleep aid and stuff like that, that kind of made me think about a question to ask, um, Ren, is there a way of making, um, biosensors with, um, these crystalline structures and can they be applied to fabrics to where we can code the fabrics to give them applications that we can kind of code? If that makes sense. Yeah, of course. 
so uh, the, uh, a lot of applications uh, can be uh, looked into and put into a real uh, product. And uh, speak of uh, the way you guys are talking about there's a need. I feel that uh, you probably there is a huge business opportunity you, should, you, you, you can think of. I'm thinking of this way in a way, you know, mortgage company, you have so many banks, you have house buyers, and then they're in the middle, there is a mortgage agent. What their, their job is, then look for different company, different banks, different rates, whatever terms, and then to work with the, uh, a, uh, the buyer, home buyer. And as soon as they sign the mortgage, they sell it to a, to a different bank or in like that. So I feel that the same similar thing is they should have a technology agent. If you can start a consulting firm, a you'll hire a lot of bunch of PhDs, so, so, sort of technology consultant or agent. And they just go to different companies, look at their needs, you know, company ABC to E to Z, whatever companies. And each person responsible for either a certain domain of the technology or a certain number of company, and they look at their demands or their needs. And then they come to look at the universities, their intellectual property office, whatever the, uh, the inventions they have. Or first, they can just simply do a web search, whoever is doing this kind of research, and then nail down a few, you know, two or three <clears throat> good people who has published very well in that domain, and then go to that university, talk to the IP office, say, you know, I have a demand here, show me your IP portfolio. And then if that person can match with the company, and then, you know, as an intermediator, hooked up the technology to the company and then problem solved, you take whatever you ask for, commission-based or whatever-based. And in that way, it's a huge business, I think, there exists. Well, I'm allergic to consultants, so I'm not familiar with the space, but Dr. Ren, isn't there probably uh, uh, certain groups of consulting firms that may be doing this, or, or is it not at all happening? I don't think so. What really is happening, the university, each university, they have IP office, and uh, they don't have too much money <clears throat> to really commercialize or advertise their IP. So if I fear, yeah, I, I figure out if you have such a kind of company, uh, really as a technology agent I was talking about, <clears throat> can act as an intermediate people and between company and university inventions, that would be a huge It's a very issue. smart idea, yeah, no, 100%. Basically, there's just a ton of tech sitting there and, and nobody's- Nobody's touching it. Actively. Nobody, nobody even knows nobody's it exists. Actively. Nobody even knows it exists. No, 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 yeah. They, 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 nobody and then the guys who made it don't know how to like that's not what they do right so there's no like active advertising of like <clears> hey <throat> we created this new tech it's just like we created this new tech well now they we're do just press releases man, but nobody ever sees them and you know they go under the radar so yeah, exactly. it's one of those right. you know corporate press releases go or something right yeah it's, it's... <laughs> and for us in the university most 90 percent of the people of the university professors they just pursue whatever is the best in the world. And they do research. After the end of the research, most of the stuff 
they just publish it. University has a saying, either publish or perish. You have to publish. After publishing, and then they move on to next project, say whatever interesting. <clears throat> and uh, only a, few, a small percentage of the, the whatever results, inventions, ended up into a patent application. <clears throat> and the patents, the US PTO issued so many patents every year, only 3% of the patents issued patent ended up into products. So there is a huge amount of technology and never been tried for products. So that's why I was saying, if you guys, you have, if you guys are very smart as entrepreneurs and you should formulate some kind of company and it just acting as an intermediate and basically try to, you know, advertise, try to take the university inventions to whoever the company needs it. And there are existing products, they need improvement. And here are the inventions that will improve your products, make it much better function and at a much lower cost. That's one kind of business. The other business is there are also entrepreneurs. They want to start something, some new product. You can also hook them up here. Here is the university A, they have this very good technology and they can make good products for some, some applications. You guys have, you, you, you probably can take it and uh, try it. So all sorts of those things. And then uh, if it can be done, it would be a, a very good, a successful business, I would say. I would think, I would think trying to deal with universities and their intellectual property portfolios and getting them to like take action. And I mean, I think you'd be slant, like slamming your head against the wall. Uh, uh, the bureaucracy, um, the fact that, you know, one person could make a decision to upend. I mean, it's just like it's like dealing with Intel or dealing. It, 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 I think it's very cumbersome, very long lead time. Um, I think that's a very that's a hard model. I think a much better model um, would 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 really be. Um, like like what Mayor wants to do, um, bring a community of inventors together, let them do what they do well, but have a group of business people, marketing people, people who have taken technologies to market, you know, and 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 collaborating together, uh, because you know I've I'm very entrepreneurial came from Wall Street, but also have been on Main Street and have created ventures from from scratch and have gotten, you know, medical devices into Mount Sinai. I mean, but those were more like luck. So I, I think the real traction is staying away from the large institutions. Unless you've got time and patience and are willing to you know, slug it out to maybe get a result that's good. By the time you do that, the you could have invented and got other things into the market and be on your third or fourth thing. That's my only comment about dealing with universities. Yeah, and the other issue is they, from my experience, uh, you know, if you are uh, an entrepreneur that doesn't have the credibility or the name, so to speak, or the background. Um, and if the company's not up and running fully and you're not fully staffed, et cetera, 
Um, it is a, a bit of a back and forth. Uh, <laughs> it could take many, many months uh, at the fastest uh, to get something done because the, the they want to license it to, to you know somebody that can do something with it, so to speak. Um, if there's no credibility there, you know. Just because I had a, a lot buddy, of show and yeah, prove. Yeah, I had a buddy yeah, right. who, who's yeah he he doesn't have the background. He you know he's never had anything out there, and he tried to go down this process, and I was helping him, um, and. Uh, I actually, you know, kind of flew in to take the meeting with him to just kind of, you know, uh, I was on the board of his company, so just trying to help him out. And, uh, you know, we convinced them at the end of the day, but it was uh, not easy. You know, they, they want to get it off to, you know, a big corporation, you know. They don't want to get it off to uh, Joe Schmo in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I agree. Like this, I mean, dealing with bureaucracies and all that. Yeah, forget that. Just If you have a group of scientists and engineers and some 3D printers, okay, um, you could just say, let's tackle uh, this problem and make a little widget a little bit better. And there's a huge market for that. You know, you could probably just target a few products real quickly, make a few things better, create the widget, slap up a website, sell a few widgets, and then license that shit out, right? Like, that's it. Like, like And then now you got revenue. It's like, okay, here's the fun, big, hairy, audacious goals that require a lot of money and we want to do. Okay, let's just go do some little simple thing to go create some license revenue. Like, you have, like, you can have a, a, a like a, a team. Um, I mean, I know this. this is what I do. I mean, very simple. You just go to like viral-launch.com. You can just identify all the different, you know, uh, grow products all over Amazon, do analytics and kind of identify areas to target, right? Um, and, and make a little bit of improvements. Like, high, high, like it's like, hey, here's, we need, we need money, right? So it's like, let's go target high margin stuff. Like, for example, a telescope is like 10x is an example, right? Beauty, simple beauty products are like 80% margin. I was in the beauty business, right? So you could target like a few, like you can have this like stream of, hey, let's solve these simpler problems to generate the revenue and constantly have like, you know, licenses coming in from that tech. And then we got these big, hairy, audacious goals that everybody really is working on that are long term, right? Whether it's like climate change stuff or like big, you know, big stuff that requires a lot of money. Well, let's, you know, create an engine and bring that money in and not have to ask anybody shit, right? You don't have to beg anybody. You don't have to wait a while. You don't have to have approvals from people because that's the problem. The problem is you just need you just need an engine to generate consistent revenue that's coming in to the scientists and engineers without all this bureaucratic shit, right? And the easiest way to do that is make something, forget everybody's, uh, will this work? Will this not work? Well, it, it, just go straight to the market with it. Go straight to the market with it. Go, instead of talking too much, how do you create a basic prototype of this technology and get it out there and get some sales and prove revenue? And then now you got everybody's attention. Instead of wasting all that time talking about would it work? Do you have a company? How big are you? Are you going to be successful or not? Blah, blah blah. Just freaking the guy will show you he's successful if he goes out and sells some shit. You know, right? That's how. That, that's what's missing. I, I see as a way as far as I see it. The only that's problem crazy. is with this model is that most of the scientists that we have here that do really innovative stuff are not American, and they don't necessarily. Everyone has a green card that can freely move around and and work wherever they want to work, they will have to work for an institution that can provide them a visa and finance it uh, and get visas. And as a university, it's really easy, especially J1s and also H1Bs. But for a company, it's really hard. Like Js, forget about it. And H1Bs is a lottery. Even if you pay for it, you don't necessarily get the visas for the people. And this is a huge um hurdle so you don't necessarily have all this innovator 
uh, engineers and so on that are really good and doing this type of work um, available as a private company. And then the other thing is the idea uh, that Dr. Ren has, what is good about it, you have, you basically um, have all this huge variety of people working in this high technology, expensive equipment background that you wouldn't be able to pull up. Kind of create that type of diversity brains in, in, uh, in a company. So that's the up and down side. But in general, I like both, but just a few things to keep in mind. Yeah, I mean, but I think that would be a matter of function of like hiring and having on, on deck a good, um, you know, just an immigration lawyer. <laughs> just an immigration attorney. Cause the big I, know, companies, I know a great one on Clubhouse. <laughs> we'll call yeah. him, ping him in here. <laughs> it's, I mean, the big company, just... company. You don't get access to all these visas. Like, there's a limit of visas every year. And as a company, you, you don't necessarily get access to them. That's just. Well, I... I can, I, best lawyer. I can guarantee you, I can guarantee you, if there's a group of scientists that get together and a group of entrepreneurs that get together to do this, those group of entrepreneurs, we got a few of them, like myself, we will figure out the, the, the visa. Like, like when you were mentioning the visa thing, I'm like, yeah, that's easy, right? It's like, there's a process for that. That means there's human beings for that process. As entrepreneurs, that's our job is to understand that how things flow around through human beings. So if there's human beings in the process and, um, you know, like I'm an entrepreneur, it's my job to figure out how to hack the system, right? I know a guy that knows the guy, basically. Exactly. That's just how it is. <laughs> Being legit, right? So it's like, how do you get in the system and legally hack it? Not illegally, legally hack it, right? And by hack it, I mean, you just don't, you just don't wait in line, you know, like, you know, I'm not going to go like if I ever wanted a job, I'm never going to go fill out an application to get a job. I'm just going to walk in and make my own job. And it's not going to be no, I'm going to get paid a salary. It's going to be like, hey, here's what the problem you have. Here's the solution. Here's how much money it could potentially make. And then create some type of avenue where it's not going to cost them anything probably for me to get in and do my thing. And then but I want to share on the upside. Right. That's how entrepreneurs think. They don't they don't care about the the um, salary thing. Right. They just want the. Um, they want the big win, right? And it's not even, it's not necessarily about the money. It's just like the, the, the big deal, right? Like to have big impact. That's their primary driver. Yeah, and Katarina, uh, which one, which one is it though? Is it good that America's bringing the brains or is it bad? Because earlier you were saying it was bad. So I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it's how people are being treated, being arrested and stuff like that for ridiculous reasons too collaborate with their home country to go back and analyze data in their home country while they are there visiting family those are the ridiculous things and it's not i'm not labeling it it's just a fact and you know and i know that a lot of companies right now are having exactly that issue to get um, good minds and good scientists that actually come into the lab and don't work from home uh, without visas it's really, really hard to get those people. And even big companies are having currently issues with that. So, and I don't know, it's, you know, if a huge company like that, if they didn't find a way around it, that 
has like billions of dollars and I don't know, makes COVID vaccines and stuff. I don't see how, you know, you just pass over it. This problems, like, I don't see that. So let me, let me, Denny, you weren't here earlier. Like, okay, so basically Dr. Ren talked about, I guess there was some other doctor that um, had done some work and then he's from China or something. Investigated. Maybe the Matrix, Matrix, Mar. Matrix. Oh, man. Okay. Am I back yet or not? Yeah, sounds good now. Can you guys hear me? Okay, so may, hey, Dr. Ren, can you maybe tell him, tell Denny what you're talking, because now this freaked out all the scientific community. And then, unfortunately, you know, like we got a lot of Chinese people here or from Chinese origin that are Americans, right? And like we should really treat them well here, especially given the tension with China. And I imagine most of them probably, like myself, I'm a Syrian and I came here when I was five. <laughs> I consider myself an American. I've been here my whole life. I'm an American citizen, right? I don't, you know, and a lot of folks that have come here consider themselves American. And if they're going to be targeted because they're Chinese um, scientists. Well, China's a unique case, Mark. China's a unique case. I spent a lot of time in China. I have a lot of respect for the for the culture. I have so much. I can't even tell you how much. But China's a unique case. because No, no, I, I get it. The competition that's ensued now. No, no, it's I don't think it's just competition. China. I think Portugal uh, is not a competition. And it ha it's stuff like this. Not wait, wait, Katerina. But hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Trouble. Uh, it's not just Chinese. It's no, but what I'm talking about is the inevitable. Like Katerina, trust me, the Chinese people here are probably are going to have are, are going to have a lot of problems coming up, right? If, especially if we don't do this right, we, you know, because like in my opinion, not in my opinion, in China's leadership's statements, they want to be the global power. Okay, so to be the global power, you have to go to war with America. That's just fact. I mean, that's just how it is if you, like America's a global power the way you become a global power according to uh historic precedent but of human beings forever have nothing to do with that and oh, oh you're right you're right you're right talking about like some war stuff in the in the science room because we have nothing to do with it I don't have my colleagues don't have so we work and what I just what I said earlier was that we are we have been educated for free uh, for the U.S. Uh, by our home countries, and uh, the U.S. is harvesting all these mines around the world because it's kind of attractive place to be. It's good for your career to have worked in the U.S. at Harvard or whatever, and they use it, and everyone would use it. I'm not saying it's bad or good, but the least you can do if somebody is working here as a PhD student on a minimum wage or, uh, and they really actually work and do, you know, great stuff. And, uh, or as a postdoc after going 10 years to school and you work maybe for 40 something thousand or even less a year because you're dependent on a visa and there's way more, sorry, then at least treat people, right. And on the rest of them are, and, Oh, I, I, I agree. Mar, real quick, Mar, real quick. Katerina, well, hold on, hold on, the only issue with... Can, can let me clarify, let me clarify, let me clarify, just for two seconds, okay? Mike, Katerina, what I'm saying is, unfortunately, the United States right now is has to, has to make a rational decision of treating foreign scientists and engineers like gold, okay? Because in my opinion, first of all, you just got to look at the facts, right? We're 5% of the global population, okay? We need to do everything possible right now to bring in every 
brain we can into this country and treat them really, 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 really well so that they stay here, right? Because we're only 5% of the population, right? And the world is changing so fast and we're not gonna have the competitive advantages, right? And the only competitive advantage, the only way you're gonna have competitive advantages is if you have all the brains, right? Wherever, wherever the brains are going, you know, then you can maintain competitive advantage over the world, right? But if the, if you screw up and you start throwing people in jail because they're 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 Chinese descent or you know foreign descent, then you're gonna screw up your whole country. Like that that'd be like the stupidest thing this country could do. That that's my point. There is like it should so actually be they should treat them very very well and have a process for making sure that they feel safe. They feel comfortable and then they, they don't flip on the other side and that they stay on on, on this yeah, side and to, to to do both sides of this thing so i can agree with everything you said regarding the treatment of science etc but we do have to keep in mind the espionage and the stealing of united states intellectual property around the world um this is you know a place where everybody comes because there's opportunity here but katarina keep in mind um you know when you say we're harvesting and you got this education from your country, um, we pay for your security. So without us making sure well, you are free right? and secure, from my own, own country. you wouldn't have the social programs in Europe you have if America what? didn't protect Europe I the way do. it protects Europe. What? Europe doesn't protect America you? protects Europe. That's the fact. That's an undeniable fact. And without that uh, high spending in military that we do, Europe would have to spend a lot more in its South military, Europe's which would then not have enough for social programs the, the way you guys spend. We always built on giants, right? So don't forget the history. Without Europe, there wouldn't even be a Well, US. everybody would be so speaking German, <laughs> potentially, or Russian without America over there. Keep that in mind. No, I think, not I think this is too much, too much into politics. Well, it's yeah. political. Yeah. We do pay for the security yeah. of Europe. Yeah. yeah. How are you yeah, paying? When we talk about these Europe. situations, just well, because we have our military station there, quickly. and just the history in general. Yeah, but that's not, hey, come on, dude. Let's not make this a let's, let's, let's not political. Let's not make this a political room. Uh, so, how much money are you making not really on exports to the world? <laughs> how much money are you making on exports? And how much? Uh, well, there's a choice that you've made as a scientist. You're making a choice to come here. Not the U.S. How much intellectual? Not based on historically. Uh, how many scientists so, did you have? Yeah. And how many innovators did you have? What's the wh who had the most patents and the most innovations in the world before World War Two? Yeah. So I can answer that. So when you make a choice, where that's a where free did will. come from? Where did yes. nuclear so, all this this knowledge come from? Where did Albert Einstein come from? From the yeah, U.S. No. I, I no, was born in no, Europe. I was exactly, born in Europe. No. I was I was born in Europe. I'm an immigrant, so no 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 issue there. But the fact is, um, there's a free oh will God, with you. Mar, you're on hot mic. Hot mic, Mar. Mar, you got a hot mic. Sorry guys, I'll be back. But the fact is, you made a choice to come to America. That is the fact. So you could have stayed in Portugal, but when you make that choice, um, it, you I made the choice. I would get personal, choice. and you're getting to my personal life here. We have no, no, I meant scientists in general. general. Scientists in general. Scientists in general. Yes, okay, so exactly. Just quickly, Katarina, I really feel for you in this situation, and this is not a way that I would ever talk to you, um, and, and yet I've been monitoring um the the same sort of um happenings in the world and um 
trends and everything like that. But this is an important aspect when when we talk about these things. If you want to bring in an attachment to an ideology, it's going to create um, a, a form of uh, uh, suffering for either yourself or another person. So the attachment to the country, the attachment to any sort of ideology, um, this is somewhat the problem and why I think they kind of didn't really let the whole American populace know exactly what was going on because of the whole America sort of mentality and, and exactly how that mentality actually impacts other people that have to endure that sort of um, narrow-minded thinking when it comes to um, the global systems, all of the people around the world and not just Americans alone. Um, and all of these people and, and a lot of this uh, ideology will get then cloud a person's ability to actually see clearly. So if they're actually attached to any ideology or have any bias whatsoever, they're not going to be able to see um, what's actually going on in geopolitics clearly because it will be rooted to an attachment of either their own home turf or their own group or their own ideology and to actually see what's happening clearly needs to be free from any of that and i am only saying this because i i just want to let you know dr ren that i truly appreciate you um all of your time and energy here even though i have talked about the escalations that or the situations that seem to be escalating around the world i by no means am attaching uh, an ideological view to what it is that I'm watching. And I just know that other people are suffering as a result, not just in one particular country alone. And um, just so you know that that uh, I cherish uh, and appreciate your time here and, and please come back and please continue to talk about such an important topic because the way in which you elaborated about uh, what's going on um, was very effective and and very meaningful and very appreciative of you and um, sharing your time and energy and I'm done talking but it is very important because if people want to actually go out there and try to do some probabilistic modeling with what's going on in the world um, your attachment to an ideology will keep that from um, coming to fruition yeah I just want thank you Kyle and I just wanted to explain so we are talking about what happened to people that contributed to productivity to this country for their whole life significantly with not necessarily a very high pay or anything. And we are talking about what happened unfairly to these people and then people start switching to country general situations or situations intellectual problem that the that person was innocent they dropped all the charges he went back the lab was basically abandoned the life lifelong very hard work that person did and benefits this country uh was destroyed and it's not the only person and very unfairly this has nothing to do with some war or anything else. This is a personal story from a person living his whole life, he, uh, not the whole life, but a big part of the life unfairly and this and was treated like this. And that is not okay. And I don't think you wanna live in a country 
because I guess, you know, Americans are all about freedom and stuff, I guess. Um, at least it's written everywhere. And um, we talked about safety and so on. You want to be safe in this country. You want to be free and live free. But taking current cold war type situations to make excuses for these type of occurrences is the problem. Because you always think it will never happen to you. But history tells us in the U.S., is not different from any human history. Thousands and thousands of years of human history shows us that this can happen to any sort of population, that people start targeting you. And this, should, this has nothing to do with the war, Cold War situation. I think, uh, whatever, uh, <laughs> so I didn't mean to start uh, this uh, political conversation. Uh, first of all, you're fine. First of all, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not a foreign scientist here. I'm an American. I have been American for more than twenty years. And uh, but what I was saying is, this country has something bad is going on, which is not fair to some people. Uh, you you think about it. The former FBI director Ori uh, said that publicly, okay, say that all the Chinese are spies. I mean, you you can't make that kind of blunt you know, statement, all the Chinese are spies. 99.999% of the people, either they are Syrian Chinese or they are American, you know, Chinese Americans, they are hardworking people, they are making contribution to the this country. Now, I view America because I'm an American citizen, I'm in, America is my country. And then when you, when you say that, you can't use, well, a few, if definitely, each, each nationality, this happens. A few people, they are bad people, bad apples, but you can't say all the people originated from that country are spies. That's not fair. Uh, I'm not trying to argue all those things anyway. Uh, what I'm trying to say is, uh, I you know I agree to give the presentation, and uh, I fear that you guys a bunch of entrepreneurs. What I'm trying to say is, uh, is people work hard and made the invention really should put the invention into the good use for the people. Uh, of course, we are in America for Americans, and uh, so how to make this happen? University. So much invention, so much uh, discoveries, uh, how to make it into commercialize this and marketing this into uh, products, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's really important. Um, and the tiny start we are making with Science Society is at least to to contribute to the awareness of the technology inventions science that is being worked on and developed. And uh, Mayer, he offered and is really interested here in, in adding to um, finding ways of, of exactly doing that. So I'm glad you're saying that because that's exactly what we are planning somehow to do in one way or the other. We have to uh, figure it out, but I agree that's that's really important because 
let's say I had a speaker here or a few speakers actually talking about antibiotic resistant um, tech, you know, technologies to address that. And the speaker said, there's funding, there's enough funding for her to do the research, but then to take the, the amazing results she has and, um, and that companies pick that up, it's a problem because current antibiotics are just too profitable currently for them. And it doesn't have any financial, they don't have a financial interest in, in taking those new technologies in because they can just like make more money with the current um, cheap antibiotics. So and there's a real gap and there that, that needs to be addressed, I agree. I, I just have to mention, you know, a friend of mine is, is going to be undergoing two major surgeries because she had... Uh, a femur implant uh, to repair a, fa a shattered, shattered femur. And she's had problems with MRSA, right? And uh, that uh, molecular drill, you know, if it could be brought to the point where where it's it's available for patients, I mean, it's it would save people's lives. It would uh, avoid a lot of suffering. My friend has been through so much with, with, with her injury and everything that, that, uh, followed from it. And, uh, it just, it, it's not a priority for, for, uh, you know, the way, um, uh, pharmaceutical products are, are, are developed. Uh, but also we, you know, there, there's real opposition to government programs, uh, to do, to, to bring things forward when the pharmaceutical industry isn't interested in them, because somehow that's competition, even though they're not interested in it. Right. Uh, so there, there are things that really need improvement on, on every level. I did want to mention really quickly for, for Dr. Ren, I, I'm sure this is not anything you don't already know, but, uh, I think that if you could uh, show some some uh, results with photovoltaics using boron arsenide, I think that would open up a whole lot for you. And yeah, just as, say, well, I hope, as well oh, as the crystal ahead, uniformity is improved, uh, we, we, we have tried that in fact before, uh, but the crystal uniformity was not so good. And then we did say photo uh, effect, uh, photovoltaic effect, but it's not, uh, Good yet, and we're 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 continuing to work on that. Definitely, uh, if we have some good result, the results are let you know. Looking forward to Does it have a direct. Um, so, um, I think we have been going on for more than three hours. So, um, I really appreciate um, your time, Doctor Ren. You have been here. Um, for a long time and we had all types of discussions. I hope you really enjoyed it. I'm sure we did. And thank you everyone for coming here and making, you know, interacting, stating their uh, points of view. I think it's important to discuss difficult topics in general and just openly and honestly discuss. and. Also to learn from you was a really amazing experience and we wish you all the best and maybe in the future 
we can we can meet again and uh, talk about more of your projects and um, yeah about future endeavors so uh, we really appreciate your time and uh, we wish you all the best thank you thank, thank you so, you much. so much thank you all thank uh, you so much uh, for the opportunity uh, to uh, present whatever we uh, have recently achieved on this um, amazing materials and if you have any questions related to these materials, uh, you can send me uh, emails. I will uh, try to answer it. Uh, I normally uh, very quickly, I read emails very uh, quickly and respond to every email, uh, basically, if it's not, <laughs> if it's not something uh, unreasonable. <laughs> okay. That's very, that's very kind of you. And we appreciate yeah, that. Okay, enjoy your weekend. Uh, happy weekend, everyone. Happy Friday. I hope, you know, we hear you all back soon. At, uh, we'll have more rooms like this next week. And uh, I'm looking forward to have more discussions of all types. So thank you so much, everyone. Great. Thank Thanks, you. Dr. Bye. Ren. Yeah, thank thank you, you for the discussion, guys. Thank you, Appreciate Ken. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Bye. Bye, everyone.